I left school when I was 15 and went um, went into a well-paid job by by chance and went travelling when I was 20 and that really set up my life in terms of looking for more than just paying the mortgage and I was originally just you know trying to find the best cannabis and that's what was driving my life at the time but very quickly I sort of smoked myself out of that uh, mentality and was left with lots of time on my hands in Asia is where I went and found myself in Taiwan studying Tai Chi and Qigong and ultimately Chinese medicine and then <clears throat> got overwhelmed with Chinese medicine and moved on to Ayurveda and ultimately got more and more into the just the, the pure biology of things and got really fired up about the evolution of it. It made the most sense to me. And looking at our evolutionary history, we've got uh, some very obvious biological tendencies that you can philosophize about one way or another, but it doesn't stop them playing their part in our mentality and our physical well-being. And so things started to become very um, physiological for me rather than philosophical. And so it led me to a very kind of practical way of doing things. I came across all kinds of meditation techniques and body prayers, moving meditations, but it, because of the Tai Chi and yoga phase of my life, I left the whole uh, psychoactive side behind, buying into the idea that um, we don't need any of those things, we've got everything we need already, and they're just distractions, they're shortcuts, they're cheat codes. and. It was many, many years later when the medicines came back into my life. And before all of that, when I was into my smoking weed and taking LSD every weekend, when I was into that phase of my life, like my teen years, like most people do, uh, I read the Carlos Castaneda books, Don Juan stuff, which had a big impact on me. And even when I gave up all of that psychoactive stuff, there was always this little back door in there saying that if if Piotr came along, which is this little cactus from Mexico that is uh, written about at length in the in the Castaneda books, I always said if that one came into my path, then I would try that. And I I'm, I'm the kind of person that sort of gets very into something and then it fades away. I'm not a consistent person. Discipline is not a word I use. It's 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 I'm I'm very joy oriented. What is attractive to me is what is bringing me the most joy. And so, each of these sort of big phases of study in the, the Chinese medical system and then the Ayurvedic system, they came had a big impact and then left again. And I was left with this more sort of physiological kind of Westernized view of the body and the mind and the psychology and how it all fits together. But there was also, uh, because of that philosophical stance earlier on, there was a very clear understanding that whether we look at the body and the universe as 
the sort of more esoteric energy ideas that you need to balance somehow, either through food or practices or breathing or meditations or whatever. That's just a language to describe something that is ultimately fundamentally mysterious. And the language of biology and psychology and neurology and all of those things, it's just a language. We're just trying to describe something that can't really be described. We can look at great detail into the cells and go right down into chemistry and biochemistry and then the physics underneath that and we end up with a picture of atoms and waveforms and we don't really know what's going on there. We pretend like we do, but we don't. And so it's all just a language to describe the mystery. And all languages, all the maps, they all have their flaws. And so while I look at things in a very biological, and when it comes to the psychoactives, I look at it as a very neurological, through a very neurological language, it doesn't take away from the, the wonder and the magic and the mystery and the, the awe of it all. It does for many people, because for many people that sciency language is very dry and very sterile and it's much more about the scientist that discovered it rather than about the miracle that is being described. Whereas for me, it doesn't. So I often meet that in how I attempt to describe how these things, how I see these things working. I often meet that feeling in others, like I'm, like I'm taking away the magic and taking away the miracle, but actually it doesn't work like that for me. So all of that is a, a kind of long twisty way of saying that I'm a very practical person that understands attempts to understand how these things work using a simpler language as possible without creating more drama and romance and um, fluff. Um, and so there's lots of people that I just kind of don't have conversations with because I know that they're very attached to that plant spirits and um, ancestor influence or reincarnation and all of that they're very attached to that language they're very identified with that language and so I don't want to steal anything from I don't want to, to rob them of that belief structure or that, that good feeling that it gives them to feel supported in the way that they do through that language so I often just bite my lip and listen to the language rather than the attachment to it like I said, I, I would present it all in a very different language, but for me, it doesn't take away any of that miracle. That does apply to scientists too, right? They, they get attached to their language as Absolutely, well. Absolutely, yeah, of course. The ego will get identified with anything. And so understanding that the language is just a language, it kind of depersonalizes it a little bit. We can say that we know with great passion, as long as we understand that we only know to a certain extent and everything else is whatever whatever this is <laughs> it's a pretty mysterious thing it seems like very mundane atoms interacting with each other but what's an atom come on break it down keep thinking an atoms made of electrons and protons and electrons are what it's just a mystery so that's that's a big part of the sort of background of of anything that i would tell you next is understanding that about me um so I came across many, many years later and had a daughter. She made me, uh, I rearranged my life so that I could be back in England to, to raise her. 
And while I was back in England, I came across the plant medicine world and just through a friend, nothing, no big story, just a friend invited me to go along to an ayahuasca ceremony. And I didn't know anything about ayahuasca particularly. And I still had this back door in my head around peyote, but peyote is very, very far, very different from ayahuasca, but something inside me made me say yes. And so I went along and I don't know why, because the first 10 times was hell on earth for me. I don't know why I kept going back. I guess there was something that just kept, there's something good in here. This, this is this this hell is good for me. It's some kind of furnace that is you know refining me in some way. I don't know. I don't really know what the justification was in my little head, but I kept going back, and that was 20 years ago. And since that first 10 times, it's just been gorgeous. It's the most favourite thing to do, and so that's what I did pretty much every month, two nights two nights a month, and. Um, I saw a weekend a month just was through the Santa Daimi which is a very particular very unusual lineage of the ayahuasca world and I was always very clear that I wasn't there to join the Santa Daimi which is this kind of Christianized church I can tell you about the history of that in detail if you like it's, it's another beautiful story in the medicine world but for me it was never about joining the church it was always just about access to whatever it was that the medicine was doing for me. And I started to explore other streams of ayahuasca and and quickly came across many different ways of doing it. And through that met lots of people and one of those ultimately invited me to a peyote ceremony. And I went, ah yeah, I said that didn't I 20 years ago, let's do that. And then I met Quautley and ultimately Crowley gave me the altar in England and and now we run beauty ceremonies in England. Um, so yeah, obviously there's a lot more detail that can be filled into all of those steps, <coughs> but I guess that will all become revealed through the rest of your questions. Alright. Is that a good start? I love it. Um, <laughs> so say you're more into the peyote world right now, the may change in the future, but what, what exactly led you down more the peyote way as opposed to ayahuasca? So after 10 years or so of pretty regular ayahuasca use and being around lots of people that are very involved in that world, I noticed that I was hearing a lot about ancestral healing and um, being changed, being downloading things from the medicine and being told all of these big grandiose statements. But I didn't actually notice many people making different changes in their lives. They weren't, they weren't making different choices and therefore their lives weren't really changing that much. They would profess to feel better in themselves, but the, the, the journeys, the many, many journeys that we were going on together didn't really seem to be educating them in how to live differently. I have a very strong environmental streak to me. And so when I went traveling, when I was 20, I, 
I didn't know any of those things. And I stopped traveling 12, 13 years later because I started to understand the problems with flying, the ecological problems with flying, which are massive. And and so I stopped flying and, and set up a community in Spain, a permaculture community, a kind of eco-community, basically. And then my daughter came along and I went to England to raise her. So I still had this very strong environmental strand to me. But I didn't notice that, for example, there's lots of prayers being said for the earth and lots of thanks being said for the earth. But I didn't really see it manifesting in, okay, how can we change the way that we live in order to fulfill these prayers ourselves? And so I started to get quite disheartened with the ayahuasca world. It apparently brings all of this healing and all of this change, but I don't see that being expressed in different actions in the people. Um, including in myself, I was more and more, I was I was going to the, the Santa Daimi weekends and the other weekends that I was uh, visiting. And I was, I was going to have a good time. If healing happens, if you know, if some karma's burned off or whatever, that's that's all well and good. I can talk about it, but actually, the reason I'm going there is because you know I was treating it like most people treat a nightclub, or a pub, or a bar. You go there to have a good time, and I didn't really have a problem with it, but it was starting to build up in me. I was starting to notice it more and more. How can I justify this? beautiful medicine that was held for so many thousands of years with such kind of respect and high esteem and then bring it over here and it just becomes something else to consume. This was starting to grind on me a little bit. And then when Piotr came along, I did it once and then a year later, once again, because it wasn't very available, quietly had to come from this, fly from the States and be hosted for a weekend. and So it wasn't very available, but then I had a conversation with Quietly and um, asked him for some medicine so that we could have just, we were doing little circles ourselves, not leading anybody else, just a bunch of friends coming together and having some medicine, singing some songs, making prayers. And so then Beauty started to be more in my life. And when Beauty came more into my life, it I started to notice, I guess, I guess the short way of saying it is that within a year, of regular POD in my life, I had changed more in terms of how I actually am in the world. I had changed more than in the 10 years of ayahuasca before. And I was seeing changes in my buddies far more than I'd seen in the 10 years before. And so, so POD for me is, it's a life changer. Whereas and not to take away from the ayahuasca world at all, I see these two forces as very um, opposite in many ways, complementary but opposite, in that ayahuasca takes you inside, it shows you the universe inside you, it, it gets into the roots of what the issues are, and she's, she's on you, she doesn't let up, she just keeps telling you the same thing until you get it, but she doesn't actually help you to resolve it, she helps you to notice it. Whereas beauty is the opposite. It doesn't blow you away into a distant universe. It brings you very much into this universe. It makes you very present to here. And it doesn't, it's not overwhelming in that way. It it is a medicine of relationships, right? So it helps helps us to understand how we are relating to the different things in our lives. 
our food, our money, where we where we work, who we hang out with, relationship to history, or you know all these different things, and so it naturally helps us to understand that we can change those relationships. And so, for me, ayahuasca is a really beautiful thing to have in your life to seek out to understand what in yourself needs to change, and then peyote is the other side of the coin which helps you to change it. So having two is, is um, yeah, blessing upon blessings. So for me, the the I, mean, I was I was given the blessing to lead peyote ceremonies. That's never happened to me in the ayahuasca world. And even if it did, I think I would I would still continue to lead peyote ceremonies. I don't know if I would lead ayahuasca ceremonies. So it's a much bigger part of my life because I see it as much more of a practical, useful thing to have in my life. Ancestrally, you know, historically, ayahuasca is generally is considered a very precious resource in the tribes in which have access to it in the Amazon. And they don't use it very often. Often the, the people don't get to use it at all. The the, the page, the person who you know, is brewing the medicine and holding the medicine, they will go on their journey and bring wisdom to the tribe. If others are in the tribe are allowed to use it, then it's maybe once or twice in their life. It's a very revered substance. Whereas the the history of peyote is not like that. The history of peyote is that it's everywhere. And most people use it most of the time. That's how it was uh, 500 years ago, before the whole commercialization of all of these things. So it, it seems to fit also historically that peyote is, is just available because we need constant guidance guidance and rearrangement to to find what we actually want and to have the courage and the confidence to to step into that is it also more abundant in the places where it grows yeah you don't have to make it you know you just you just go out into the desert cut it eat it so people do i've always done i guess you could say for many 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 um, thousands of years gone out, cut the medicine, gone for a walk, considered what they are needing to do in their lives and then and then act upon that. And the same could also be true of ayahuasca, but you have to go and find two different plants and you have to brew them together. It takes takes a lot of effort to do that. But in the traditional settings, the access to the medicine is there all the time. People have personal journeys all the time. And that's a big difference to how it is treated here because it's a very precious resource for us. And so we gather together and we use it together. Not that they didn't do that, they did, but they had personal journeys all the time. And when there was something big to pray for, when the, when the community has something that it's trying to lift all together, so when a baby is born or when someone dies or when someone has got a big project or a big plan to do, then they gather everybody together and ask for the assistance of the community. And that's where the ceremony, the ceremonial side of it comes from, is pulling the community together to aim towards a single goal, whereas they had access to it all the time. Whereas when you bring it over to England or down to Central America, it's it doesn't grow all around, so we have to be very careful with it, so we create ceremonies only. People don't have access to it all the time. It's quite a big difference. Mm. So, peyote, so people who consume it, you said not on a daily, but like I guess like on a weekly basis, mm. pre-colonial era. Um, how would that work in their lives? I, I know that kids consume it as well. Mm. So, so 
could you get us into yeah the life of a of a North American um, indie? Yeah, I mean, I say all of these things as a little white boy from Londoner, so <laughs> I'm very aware of my privilege of even knowing these things. And I can only know much of it because, I mean, I read a lot, but a lot of what you read is very influenced by the, the colonial um, mask over it and the, the filtration that happens when, you, when, you, when a, a Jesuit, a Christian culture meets a native culture and all the things that they don't like about it don't get written about and all of that kind of... Um, that phrase history is written by the victors all that stuff but I have also access to native peoples from that place and so um, I hear the stories that they tell also so uh, Piotr is not an overwhelming medicine so when we when we gather together into big groups and we take it ceremonially we deliberately kind of loading up on the medicine because we want to charge up the energy because it's quite rare that we're all together but to take beauty every day is, is not a problem. It doesn't require any dietary management. There's nothing you should or shouldn't, or something you have to or have to not do in order to consume it every day. And so there's a practice actually that um, many people do, which is to take a spoonful every day for 13 days. And you don't make a special place for it. You might, you know, might take a little five minutes out just to give thanks for the, for the medicine, but then you go about your day. And on a spoonful, you can still drive, you can still work, but everything is through this filter of a bit more compassion, a bit more patience, a bit more energy, a bit more awakeness, a bit more presence. And so it just helps to weave the, the energy of the medicine into your daily life. It's a very beautiful thing to do. And so my understanding is that many of the peoples that had access to Piyoti pre-colonial times, um, it was a fairly regular practice because it, it, it breeds um, balanced humanity. And that's what humanity needs, you know, it's balance. So a lot of it was being consumed. There's also, it seems to be one of the most traded substances across the whole of North America. So there's, we have some, we have a very kind of Hollywood idea of, of Native America before we got there mostly after we got there which is this idea of, kind of separate tribes that are all battling with each other and living in this kind of barbarian uh, atmosphere that the Christians wanted, needed to portray them as so that we could go and dominate them but when you have lots of little tribes like that they don't build big structures little tribes don't do that if they're constantly warring with each other they are using up all their resources doing that but actually, the, the whole of North America and all the way down into Central and to South America, America to some extent, we find massive, massive structures. Uh, the biggest roads on the planet are still now called the Pan American Highways that were built pre-colonial times. Little warring tribes don't do that. Big trading nations build roads. And so... It, it doesn't fit the picture when we look at what we're actually seeing on the ground. And it, it's very much a civilization of trade. Many of the foods that are eaten today on the planet came out of that culture. Everything from potatoes and tomatoes to avocados and 
cotton and rubber and all of these things they were they were created through the interaction of those people's understanding how plants work and building mass civilizations based upon this is beautiful premise in that in that world uh, that comes I give a lot of these kind of talks in the in the ceremonies that we do that the the culture that built those big city structures their founding premise was create or grow more food than everybody needs and then there's nothing to fight about which is a beautiful premise which is why they were so good at growing corn and cotton and tomatoes and potatoes and beans and squashes they, they, they had sussed that level in fact the whole of Native America the whole, all the way from the uh, midway up through Alaska all the way down to Nicaragua all spoke a single language they all spoke many many different languages some of them spoke up to 30 different languages but they all spoke the language of Nahuatl which is the language of trade here all the way from Seattle Seat, which means the first water the first big river in the north all the way down to Nicaragua which in Nahuatl is Nicanahuatl which means up until here they speak Nahuatl. <laughs> so that entire landmass all spoke this same language of trade. You don't get that with little warring tribes. The picture's just not correct. So why did I start saying all of that? Um, so peyote was another one of those widely traded substances along with different foods and they would all gather in certain locations at certain times over the over the decades and Come together and trade a little bit like coffee these days um there you go maybe yeah um, certainly tea a couple of hundred years ago that was that was a one of the <laughs> biggest huh could keep keeps being that um yeah. sugar before that or antitrial that yeah there's so many <laughs> <laughs> let's let's uh, uh, steer this towards uh personal use versus tribal use or use in ceremonies or in groups because mm. Help me clarify this. So peyote, do you think it was mostly used uh, individually or, or in ceremonies? Because from what I can gather, you, you say it, it was most like a personal use, almost like tea, depending mm. on the tribe, depending on the, on the air, right? Yeah. So yeah, help us clarify that. I think you're right. I think it is like we consider um, uh, the, the uh, coffee is a good example. It, it's a stimulant. It helps us focus. It helps us to... Uh, be energized and get on with what we need to do and the the, uh, the culture in which we sit is a very much a get on with it kind of culture there's things to do get on with it that's what you're that's your purpose that's your, how you earn your place here kind of thing and I think it was less like that I think it was more about um, how you how masterful you can be over yourself and therefore being as beneficial to those around you and not just the people around you, but the, the planet around you and also the generations that will come after you. And that requires a lot of kind of broadness of mind to everything, every action to be considered in those contexts. And we as human beings seem to be uh, losing that capacity for ease of empathy and consideration and, and big broad thinking. And beauty is one of those things that substantiates that. 
it makes it easier to get into that mindset. And so I think people were, it's not like they were popping pills every five minutes. I don't see it like that. But they, many of them, if they felt like they were a little bit out of place, then it, it's there to be used. And when there's a big prayer to lift, then they gather together and they use it in that ceremonial sense. And they use more. And then- uh, exactly, exactly. So I, that's my impression of it. So can we um, put that next to ayahuasca, the personal use versus the tribal use, ceremonial use? Yeah, and there's uh, when you go down into the Amazon, it, you don't have the ease of movement like you have in North America. North America is mostly open territory and you, you have trade routes that are very easily established and broad Uh, numbers of people in constant contact with each other. Whereas when you go down into the, the denser environment of the forest, it's it's more difficult to move around. So you tend to get more isolated cultural pockets. And so you'll probably find quite diverse use of ayahuasca and belief structures around it and all of that because of the nature of the environment. And from my understanding it's there's there's personal use of it sometimes and the vast majority of it is uh, ceremonial use but not not big gatherings of people mostly be you know someone's sick how can we help this person out okay we go see the we go see the the medicine carrier and he will administer different plants to them and one of those plants might be ayahuasca and he may well use some ayahuasca himself to find out what plants would be best for that person. So I don't think it has so much of a social bonding um, event. And we see this if you compare purity ceremonies with ayahuasca ceremonies generally. The picture's changed a lot, especially since the Santa Daimi, but traditionally ayahuasca isn't a social event. It's not about the ceremony, it's about the internal experience. Whereas purity, you gather people together, it's about the event. So there's quite a difference, again, in terms of where our attention tends to go under the influence of these two medicines. Um, <clears throat> with ayahuasca, there is bliss, joy, there is happiness, there is love. Is it real? Okay, so the first mountain to climb there is what the word real means. So. <laughs> Like I said, I, I pair all of this stuff back down to the chemistry. So we have a, uh, we, we can't directly correlate consciousness, awareness, feelings, all of that stuff to chemistry. But we can definitely say that the two interact. We could even say that one is a product of the other. Yeah, if I shoot you full of dopamine, you're going to feel a certain way. I shoot you full of adrenaline, you're going to feel a certain way. So there's definitely a strong correlation, but I'm not about to say that all of consciousness is chemistry. However, when you tweak certain chemicals in the brain, you are going to get an experiential effect. And so my understanding of of the, the neurology of it comes from quite a different viewpoint in which the, the, the medicine, plant medicine world is uh, interacts with this world, but it's much more uh, 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 evolutionary event that we like to think that we are the most um, 
advanced version of human beings that have ever been. Because we're fundamentally insecure and we have to think that we're the best of everything because that's just where we are in ourselves right now. But the evolutionary track record, the uh, the fossil record, and certainly certainly the social record, if you include all the historical records pre-history, they all point to a general decline in human awakeness. We're becoming more and more self-centered, less and less connected to everything else. Our brain cavity, the, the cranium, has shrunk over the course of evolution. You see it very clearly in the fossil record. We age much more quickly. We, uh, our mental capacity degrades much more quickly, all of this. So I don't see anything saying we're getting better and better. I see lots of things saying we are degenerating. And so at some point in that degeneration, we realized that the plants can help. So we brought them in. And so our general capacity to connect with the ambient forces in the universe around us, our capacity for sensitivity to the big forces out there is, is failing. So more and more we feel separate from everything. When we feel separate, we feel scared. And so we need to control. So we dominate and you know, that natural pattern. And uh, there's lots and lots of different practices, all of them written down by people 5,000 or more years ago of how to keep a sense of safety, uh, keep a sense of sensitivity, keep a sense of connection, keep a sense of, of beauty and wonder and awe, whether you're talking about meditation practices or breathing practices or dancing practices or, or um, plant practices or whatever. They're all... Interestingly, they all have the same effect upon our serotonin levels, our DMT levels, our oxytocin levels. And so for me, that whole, all of those practices, all of the plant world, all of that spiritual blah, blah, is all can all be boiled down to the effect it has upon the neurology and therefore the effect it has upon consciousness. So real or not, I don't know whether that answers that question. I don't really know what the question means. I but think it's, it's a yes. Do effective. Mean, sounds like yes. Effective is, is the closest, I would, I would say. And I'm asking this question about real because, because someone listening to this um, who has no idea about what ayahuasca is or sure. peyote, sure. they consume coffee, they consume yeah. alcohol. They know that, that there's something in your brain that, that can be modified. <clears throat> but if it's, if it's just this night when you feel awesome and, 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 and you get a great time, well, isn't that dangerous? Because you will want to do that again, and that's that's a that's a path down to rehab. Absolutely. So, what would you say to that? Yeah, it's it's a very real question. I think it's the right question. Uh, as I said, most of the people that I know that go regularly to ayahuasca circles are going for a good time because it feels good. There's there's definitely this pattern within the ayahuasca world, within the plant medicine world, that the more often you do it, the less kind of troubling it becomes, and the more just beautiful it becomes. And so there is definitely that pull towards towards having a good time, which in many ways is no different to going to a club and, and getting a bit drunk and or smoking weed with your mates or smoking crack with your mates, whatever. It's all about the same elevation of chemistry. For me, the, the point of the operation is, are you left in a bet, as a better person than you were before? That's the critical factor. And not just in your head, but also in your actions. Exactly. That's the, that's the key bit. And if you are actually feeling better in your head, then 
the evidence of that is your actions. Maybe you don't need quite so many new clothes or to be on the screen for quite so many hours a day or, you know, I mean, you should start to see changes. If you're not seeing changes, then maybe the changes that you think are happening are, are, are actually not happening. Yeah. And so is there a change? That's right. The so, so from your experience, right? I think there's like um, mounting evidence from, from psychedelic research that there is change. Yeah. Tell, tell us about your experience. So about a year or more ago, I started to have this question because I have this um, concern about the ayahuasca world. And I suddenly thought, okay, I, so I need to check in whether there is actually change in the people that come to the ceremonies that I run. I'm risking all kinds of things in order to facilitate this. And if I'm just having a good time with my friends, there's other substances out there that I can do that with. That I don't have to reach my freedom for. So I started to ask, I sent out um, a message to my, um, my mail out, my mailing list. And specifically to ask this question like what changes do you see is this worthwhile we're asking this plant to come all this way under great duress and great effort i need to know there's something worthwhile here and most of the people that responded were would talk about their internal landscape that they feel much better they feel more connected they've re-established a helpful relationship with their father or their children or you know there's there's some change and the rest of them that I guess what I'm trying to say is the overwhelming response was probably 60% yeah but it's very intangible and uh, it could just be a, a shift in their illusions about their lives and there were enough others that convinced me that they saw positive change. So this is one of the things I always say at the end of my ceremonies that don't leave here and go out and tell stories to all your mates. I know you've all been making lists of people that you know that should definitely be here because everybody wants to feel like this. Everybody wants everybody they know to feel like this, especially in the morning because we're so kind of opened up. But um, in, in going out and telling lots of stories, A, you are... Um, threatening the um, the security of what we do because as an indicator of just how insane our culture is it's not allowed to do this but you're also turning your experience into a bunch of stories and the stories don't feed us as much as the experience does and so actually don't go out and tell any stories if you feel like you really must then don't use any names don't use any places you know kind of keep it as discreet as possible but don't go out and try and convince somebody else that they need to come. If what you just did in the night of, of or on the weekend of the medicine retreat, if what you did is actually worthwhile, if it's not just some peak event that, that goes away again, if it's actually worthwhile, you'll be changed. And other people will see that change in you. And they'll come to you and ask, what have you been doing? I want some of that. And that's when you pull them in. Mm. Because if there's no change, then what's the point? Not, not what's the point that makes it sound like a good time isn't worthwhile uh, it can be very therapeutic can be very healing can be you know just 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 being listened to by your friends can be very therapeutic and not taking anything away from that but if it's actually changing you then that's why i'm interested in yeah, that's where the juice is for me yeah you're setting the bar very high there because because having a great time in itself having like 
the most like overwhelming sense of joy. If that's not worthwhile, then I'm not sure what. <laughs> but, but, but you count that as not actual change. I see why. Yeah. But yeah, I'm glad. And so you say about 40% of your uh, people have uh, convinced you. Yeah. And, and that is a high bar. I think, for, <laughs> so, um, I think it's a nice number. I think it's, it's, um, it's something that people out there should know about. Um, and there is all this research from the psychotherapeutic world. Like I said, we're not just poking around in the dark anymore. There are people that finally, after 60 years of prohibition, are finally starting to pull together some numbers again, which is fantastic. And um, so, um, so you were on the peyote side, especially recently, I've, I've understood. Um, do you have any experience or any, uh, any data to share about uh, the other adjacent substances? Um, like, especially in light of how much work, how much actual tangible change uh, they can uh, cause in people? Um, well, the, the, so there's like four or five sort of main medicines that are on the movement at, on the move at the moment. The flagship is ayahuasca. That's the word that everybody's heard. That's the one that, you know, is like leading the charge. And it's because she's just so big and loud and so obvious. Um, I, like I said, I have my concerns about how much change she actually can generate on her own, but she's the, she's the word that everybody's heard. And so that one's obvious. And then uh, along tailing behind her are all the others. So Beauty, we've already spoken about. That one is um, the one that's the major one in my life, and it's maybe the second most popular, but it's way behind. She is she's way ahead. Ayahuasca is definitely the, the, the tip of the spear. And then somewhere around the peyote world is uh, the Huachuma world, uh, the San Pedro, which is another cactus, comes from the, from the Andes and is, it has similar uh, chemical components to peyote, so it has a similar effect, but it tends to be more just joyous. It's often done in the day rather than in the night. It's often done outside with much less of a sense of ceremony because there's less that needs holding. It's not so, it doesn't tend to be so processy. And um, traditionally, it's often used uh, a big dose of it and then they all go for a walk through the hills because it, it's, it's that big expanse. It loves the sun. It loves movement. It likes, likes being activated by, by life. And... It's, it's very therapeutic in, in as much as it's very joyous. It's like this generator of joy and beauty and awe and wonder. It's, it's, it's one of my favorite ones. I don't, I don't use it in the same way that I use peyote. I don't use it to go deep into, into someone's story, myself or anybody else, and unpack it so much. It's more just like resting in the glory, which is hugely therapeutic and hilariously funny and beautifully musical and yeah all of that lovely lovely stuff and then bringing up the rear what i would consider probably the fourth medicine that's really out there in terms of psychedelics is uh iboga witty tradition which is uh, probably the most mysterious of all of them and it's not something that I've had any experience with. I know lots of people that have done that. I know a few different people that have taken their initiations in Gabon and are moving around in various ways, various um, places. 
leading those ceremonies and I've attempted to to get involved a number of times and it's just the door keeps closing on me but that one seems to be the one that is a proper rewirer of people and therefore needs to be treated with you know that much respect because some people don't come out the other end you know uh, I've never heard that really said of the ayahuasca world or the peyote world or the San Pedro world, but in the in the Iboga world, yeah, you're you're literally putting your hands in the life of you're putting your life in the hands of that medicine carrier, which is a big deal. And they have to go if they do it well, if they do it properly, they have to go through a lot of training before they can play with that one because it's so powerful. But the rewards are that powerful also. And of course, the pharmaceutical world is very much in there in isolating ibogaine, and it's now one of the most renowned um, drug rehabilitation um, tools, and it's it's a very big thing. But it's not something that I have any personal experience to draw from. But it's it's the one that I consider like the, the big uh, one at the end. Boga, yeah. Um, is there any any other on the plant line before we move on to the more synthetic or the more party uh, type of substances? Um, I mean, there's lots of different versions these days of tobacco, basically. Tobacco is something that uh, is considered just a sort of bad-smelling, addictive problem in the West, but it needs to be understood also in its original context. And all of the traditions that I'm aware of that had access to tobacco historically ancestrally they all talk about it as the first of all the medicines and through the use of tobacco all the other medicines were discovered so sometimes it's used in its smoked form which we're more familiar with where it's used to verbally pray with and it's also useful to understand that tobacco has some psychotropic components to it and so it's often used to focus the mind to to clear the decks to bring energy to you know all the ways that a classic smoker uses tobacco to manage stress because it focuses things and it calms and it provides energy but it's a it's a use before the smoking of it in the native culture was much more making juice from it. So if you take a green tobacco leaf and you squeeze it, you get tobacco juice, which is an incredibly powerful purgative. And so if you've got something going on in your system that you want to get rid of, you've got a, a, a rough stomach and you want to clear it out, drink tobacco juice and you will vomit it out. Classic use of any herbal medicine. Pretty much, every, again, boiling it back down to the chemistry of what's going on there, pretty much the use of all herbal medicines is the use of a poisonous chemical in the plant to stimulate the body to do something that it should be doing anyway. That's the phrase that I use. And so tobacco is incredibly purgative. So if you pour it into your belly, it's, you're going to throw up what was there. And it's, it also causes all kinds of uh, immunological reactions in the body. So that can be helpful to keep the immune system in. It also contains monoamine oxidase inhibitors, which change the uh, kind of higher levels of, of chemistry in the brain. And uh, it's often snorted. You put, make a little pool of it in your hand and snort it up your nostrils into your sinuses and it gets absorbed in through your sinuses. And that has an incredibly clearing, clarifying effect on the mind and and is also purgative in that way. So tobacco is, is very much a plant medicine, absolutely no question. 
there's lots of others out there if we really go into them. I mean, the cacao, another one that's been very mundaneified in our culture. But that's, that's one of the Mayans' main heart-opening plant medicines. So it depends how, how, dig, how deep you want to dig. And once you really start digging into the chemistry, all foods, all plants have an effect. They have an energetic effect. So that's what Chinese medicine and Ayurveda are referring to. That's what the dietas are referring to. Is You can change your physical and mental emotional state depending on what you eat. And so there are some plants that are a little bit more pokey than others. And so they become celebrated as a more reliable effect on most people. So then you start to get plant medicines, as in sacred ancient plant medicines. And then the, the next level up from that, I guess, are like the psycho, psychedelic versions of those. So there's like hierarchies of the plants. Um, hape, rape, is another version of tobacco, basically. Ground into dust with one or two other plants added that generate effects so you can you, know, you can go down all kinds of different avenues and then you really start opening up and you start talking about cambo and bufo and then you're talking about animal substances that are used to stimulate effects people do the same thing in africa with with um snake bites they use them to generate different states of consciousness or ant venom or bee venom you know these things are Human beings are tinkerers, man. We love playing with consciousness. We get anything we can get our hands on. <laughs> yeah, 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 I know that. Um, <laughs> so it really depends how how open you want the field to be, you know. Yeah, but in the year two thousand twenty-four, um, <coughs> your average uh, tripper would uh, first get in contact with something like psychedelic mushrooms sure. or LSD. Yeah. Um, how do they relate to all this plant medicine? I'm a chemist, so for me there's no difference. They are different ways of changing the chemistry, of changing the neurology. And um, mushrooms, I guess, should have been in that discussion as well about plant medicines. Um, a lot of people come to me, before we go to your actual question, a lot of people come to me like, why are you using a medicine from so far away? We've got mushrooms growing just down the road. And my answer to that is always the same. That I cannot understand how a mushroom ceremony would work. Mushrooms are hilarious things. You would end up with a party, which is fantastic, beautiful. I do that too. I, I love those things, but that's different. You, you try and focus a room full of people on mushrooms into lifting a particular prayer. It's not going to happen, man. You're going to have a lovely time. You're not going to hit that. So um, no doubt in my mind, no doubt at all, that there were many, many, many other plant medicines in our culture across our lands that were used for ceremonial purposes. Mushrooms wasn't one of them. Mushrooms was with a jug of ale down in the pub and in the evening, you know, because it's such fun. But we've lost contact with all of those many other plant medicines because of 2,000 years of Christianity and, you know, probably 1,000 years of Romans before that. So... Um, yeah, mushrooms up should very much go in that category. But you're right, socially, in the culture of today, most people get involved. I, I would guess my journey is quite typical. First of all, cannabis, and then LSD, and then mushrooms, or maybe the other way around. And then MDMA, and you know, and then off into the more sketchy ones, and ketamine, and la 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 la. Um, and for me, all of that just points to how we we know that, that there's something that's not quite right upstairs in us. We know that this, 
berating, belittling, little tyrannical bastard in our heads that's constantly going, you're not good enough and you don't belong there and you need to do that. You wish you'd done that yesterday and you should do that tomorrow and all that yak, yak, yak goes on our heads. That's not normal. That's not, well, that is normal. It's not natural. We shouldn't be being. That should not have the pride of place that it has. And taking any substances that alleviate that for a moment, including alcohol, make us relax for a minute. And that's a very therapeutic thing. And especially when teenagers start to get the neurological changes, which they do, and that voice starts to come in very big, that's when we start reaching for anything, just anything to sedate that monster. And like I said, for me, it's, it's, it's all about effectiveness. And so something like LSD, for example, is incredibly clean, pharmaceutically clean medicine. Doesn't have any plant complications to it. Doesn't the plant isn't is all plants are trying to protect themselves. They don't want to be eaten, so they cover themselves in all kinds of poisonous things. So if you're going to eat a plant medicine, you're also going to be eating the things that that plant wants you to not eat. And so you've got a bit of a belly going on and the difficulties of of dealing with plants. Whereas when you take pharmaceutically clean medicine, you haven't got any of that. You've got pure neurological effect. So I think they have a definite pride of place. And they they have in my medicine cabinet. Mm -hmm. They're some of the best. Um, So yeah, so what role does suffering, bad tripping, or or these like uncomfortable moments in a ceremony or otherwise uh, play in... In, in reaching that goal, ultimately, to, to have transformation, to, to learn, to take something away from the medicine and, and integrate it in your life in a positive way. So how important it is that a peyote ceremony, for example, has some cringe to it, has mm. some some of that negative things to it, that, that first couple hours you're like, ooh. Yeah. Wish I hadn't done this. Yeah. Uh, we're complicated things. We have a little a little shell of personality on top of a big deep pool of subconscious would be one way of saying it. And that subconscious isn't just uh, conscious. It's also, it's, it, it is the body. It, it, it lives in the body, you could say, it is the body. And so, for example, um, I know from the work that I do in the detox retreats, because I run fasts for a living, and I lead the nutritional talks on those fasts and it, it's again it's all about the physiology of it and I understand enough to be able to see that the the gut the intestine is it's it's not in the shape that it should be and by shape I mean the physiological musculature of the intestines is is not where it should be some bits are tight some bits are loose it's it's out of shape it's twisted around it falls out of place it's, it's a bit of a mess because we have, um, you could say, the place that we store our emotional world is in our body. If we have very stressful times, then that adrenaline that's released in order to get us to solve the stress often can't be released because you can't beat your boss to death with the chair because you're not allowed. But that's what the body wants to do. It wants to get away from the stress, wants to solve it, but we can't, we don't allow ourselves to do it. So the chemistry of stress is still in the body. So it's a very bodily event. And so a lot of the places where that chemistry saturates and contracts, waiting for action that it's not allowed to fulfill, is the intestines. Mm. 
And so we have a lot of tension in our gut. And when we take a plant medicine, we have all kinds of things going on. One of those things is that the gut is the first place that medicine is received. And the gut has a whole layer of neural tissue running all the way through it. Synapses, neurons, neurotransmitters. And so the first place that gets hit by this chemistry is the gut. And so the gut wakes up and goes, what is this? And tries to solve it. But we've still got all the mental repression that meant that the, those emotions couldn't be expressed in the first place. So we've got this battle going on from the bottom up and then the top down. So we've got a lot of emotion trying to be released in the, in the physiological sense and a lot of suppression trying to continue it. And then eventually the medicine will win out. But in the meantime, you've got this bumpy takeoff. So that's my best explanation as to why a lot of that is going on. But when you're taking plant medicines, you've also got the body trying to work against the poisons in the plant because the plant doesn't want to be eaten. So you've got a whole host of different things. So you've got the subconscious bubbling up and the conscious not wanting to take the lid off. So you've got this battle. I see this battle and um, and it's beautiful when it resolves and it becomes clear who's the picture. (laughs) so, So to return to my original question, like, is that necessary? Isn't it? just okay, just as well, to drop some acid and skip all that nasty part? Quite possibly, quite possibly. But I would com- I would analogize, I would compare that to the person who just never deals with any of their stuff and just attempts just to have a lovely life, just to have a lovely life, don't look at any of the stuff. It doesn't tend to work out so well because it's all still in the basement. Um, your... 10 hellish experiences on ayahuasca. Would you say they were more productive? You you, you picked the low-hanging fruits and your learning curve was way steeper uh, at the beginning. Also partly because it was so hellish. Is there a correlation to healing, uh, between healing and how bad the journey is, mm. so to say? Mm. Independent of medicine. Yeah, I, I don't know that there <coughs> is. People talk about it like that. Uh, as much as anything, probably just to make themselves feel better, you know, to kind of justify the the journey. Um, I don't know that it is necessary or beneficial, but it there's not a lot you can seem to do about it. It does seem to be just one of the gateways that you got to go through, and and sometimes it happens and sometimes it doesn't. And my experience over the years is that people always come out shining in the morning, no matter how hellish or heavenly their journey was so i don't know whether it's necessary but it does seem to be inevitable um you're a master of fire and i have seen you dance with fire and it was beautiful and i'd like to ask you about your connection with fire your journey and especially um about this five minute instruction set Mm. that you got from your master that you claimed is all you need to know in theory to get started with mastering fire? Um, I'd like to backpedal a bit on the word mastery. <laughs> <laughs> I, I'm, a, I'm a very practical person. I, I'm all about efficiency. And so by the time the fire, this, before I, by the time I started to encounter this kind of fire building, I was already quite good at fire because I can understand what it needs. You know? And so my understanding was incomplete before I came across this way of doing it. But I was already 
you know, before I came to the medicine, I would always be the person in the in the campfire circle that would be the one that would hold the fire. Just because, I mean, it's a beautiful thing to do. It's a beautiful thing. And it is, it's a joy to do. And I can see that uh, the easiest way of doing it. Others can too, but I'm, I'm late in there. So um, when I came to hold the first fire for Quali, I'd already seen it held uh, by a few other people. And so I knew kind of roughly what shape. I didn't really understand why. But so the instruction that he gave me was that, and this is probably with a few more editions of my own these days, because it was a long time ago, that um, you're making this arrowhead fire of um, basically you lay down one log and then you lay down another log on top of it and they're just a little bit back from the tip of each other. And then, so first one goes down on the right and then one goes down on the left and another one goes down on the right and another one goes down on the left. So you end up with this arrowhead shape, like if you put your first knuckles together in your fingers. And the reason that it's done like that, or the most obvious reason that it's done like that for me, is that when wood is touching wood, it doesn't burn because there's no airflow it will act like one piece of wood. And so if you separate those two, even just by like two fingers, you allow air through, and so that surface will also burn. And so the principle behind that is that less, the least wood you've got touching wood, the more burning surface you've got. And so when you lay two pieces together at 90 degrees to each other, that's the minimum contact. Yeah. If, if you start to bring them down so that they're more parallel, you get more contact. So 40, uh, 90 degrees is, is the greatest surface area. And that's what you want, that's burning area. And so each one that goes down rests on top of the previous one so that you've always got maximum airflow around the logs. So that's the kind of general structure of the thing. The other end of the logs all want to be resting on the ground so that you've got the maximum elevation. The logs are pointing as up as possible so that the fire is going to want to stay in the point of the arrow. The more horizontal those logs are, the more the fire will run back, which means that you don't have one fire, you have lots of little fires, and when those bits of wood are, are quite burned, you can't get hold of them anymore because the fires run all the way back. So the more elevated they are, the easier it is to handle them, yeah? and the more of a single peak of flame you get. So that's the kind of general principle, which is fine. You set it up once and it, it burns lovely. The complicators come when you need to take it apart and put it all back together again, because as it collapses, you end up with lots of little bits spewing outside. And if you put those little bits just on top, you end up with just a heap of wood and you've got wood in contact with wood, which won't burn. It will give you uh, smoke. Yeah? And over the course of the fire, you're going to get a big heap of coals. And when you get a big heap of coals, I still don't understand the, the physics of it, but when you get a big heap of coals, somehow it sucks all the light and all the heat. Because at one level, you've got more bits of wood touching coals, so they can't flame because they're in contact with coals. Yeah. But even the bits of wood above that that are off of them, they seem to give much less heat and light. I don't understand it. I know that if you take them off, take the coals out and restack it, suddenly the fire's twice as bright. Maybe it's because of the the, the CO2 that uh, the coals are absorbing. Like choking the fire. Yeah, 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 yeah. Could be. 
I was, I've sat many times and contemplated what is actually happening here, but the point of the operation is to have a big fire. So rather than be sitting there thinking about it, just get on with it. <laughs> so, so the five minutes they've quietly told me was essentially you want each piece of wood to, when you, when you backstack the fire, so you've got the arrowhead and you, it's collapsed and you need to get the coals out, you bring the, the, all the long bits of wood and you make another stack behind the stack. Behind all, the stack of coals, <clears throat> Well, you've got you've got the coals and the arrowhead that you've currently got that's now collapsed, and you want to make another stack in here. So you take the big bits and you put them just a little bit back, and then the next biggest bits and just the next biggest bits until so you end up with a second stack. And there's no stack anymore; it's just all coals and little bits of wood. And then you scrape all of those coals forward, and then because you started off putting the big ones at the bottom, you've got all the little ones at the top. So then you can restack with all the little ones first, which means you end up with all the big ones on top. Yeah. So it's just a very simple process of unwinding it and winding it back up again. And then you can make the designs with the cults that you've just brought out. Mm -hmm. So very simple things like that, Very things that you might think would uh, are obvious to understand. But in the doing of it, when you've got this big blazing thing that you're trying to move around, there's a lot of nuance there of exactly how do you do that. And the restacking of it is is an art in itself, how to get it all stable. Like um, if you just got a single stack of arrowhead shaped logs, then, um, then the, the fire is going to take a long time to catch from one level to the next level. And so often you do two and two and two and two because it traps more heat. But then when you've got two logs next to each other, if the inside one is thicker, the outside one won't rest on the outside log. Mm. Yeah, and so then you put another log on top of it and it lifts it off the ground and it's inherently unstable. So you want, always want the biggest one on the outside. Yeah, and you also want the longest ones on the outside because you want it to look good to everybody else as well. So there's all these like details that go into it. So ultimately it's a very simple, like most things, a very simple principle, but actually a very complicated and ever-changing application because mm. all the bits of wood are different and they're often not straight and they've got knots and gnarls and just thicker at one end than it is at the other and you know it's life so um, there's a lot of details that are have to be at your fingertips and you don't necessarily use them all each time and you don't know that you cannot express them in words you just have to just like feel yeah, it right? feel it out you feel it out and and it's, it's, it's the heart of the ceremony. That's the main thing to understand that if the fire goes out, the ceremony's over. And so uh, traditionally, the fireman has to be a father because that fire is, and the ceremony is going to require you to go beyond yourself in a way that only fatherhood can have pushed you before. And lots, lots of people get halfway through the night and they just say, I can't, I can't do it, I'm too hot. I'm dehydrated, I'm too high, I'm knackered, you know, whatever the reason is. But you can't not, you've got to get, you know, you have to go beyond yourself. And fathering will have taken you there. Because you go naturally go beyond yourself. Because, you've, of course, you've got this lovely little creature that, of course, you're going to go do what you don't feel like doing <laughs> to serve her. And so it's, it's all that kind of energy. You know? It's very much service. In, in the most beautiful way and, and the most delightful way. <laughs> uh, it was beautiful watching you do that and um, 
and to connect with the element of fire. Mm-hmm. Uh, during the peyote ceremony, I, I appreciate a lot that we talked in in the language of elements. There was mm-hmm. the water and there was the air and there was the feminine and the masculine. Um, could you help me navigate the this this fine line between um, what it actually means, the element of water and the element of fire, and um, how seriously we should take that they actually represent something that that is. What I'm trying to say here is that when I, me and my science friends hear those words, you know, like uh, like a question mark goes on, like, do you actually believe in the, the spirit of the fire? So could you, yeah, like share with us, like how you, like what, what, where are you in your brain when you use those words and, and, and how, how did processes for you when you think about those? I use the word spirit very specifically. So you, you'll never hear me say the spirit of the fire, the spirit okay. of the water, because my equally sciencey biological physics brain doesn't want to make things more complicated than they are. <laughs> So, uh, so to digress a little bit, just to define that, I, I don't talk about plant spirits. I don't, I don't use the language that describes the effect of peyote as uh, the spirit of peyote coming into me and talking to me. That's, that's unnecessary. It makes things more complicated because I have, in doing so, I have invented another personality and now i'm interacting with that invention i talk about that as inventing imaginary friends the universe is already easily awe inspiring enough i don't need to make it more complicated than it is i can just look at the chemistry and see the wonder of that i haven't needed to invent a being to explain it yeah. so for me it's the language of science and physics and chemistry is an easier way to describe it like i said for some people it steals the romantic and the spiritual out of it it doesn't for me yeah. The, 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 the physical is the spiritual, it is the, the magic. Yeah? We don't need to invent magic. It's all around us all the time. The miracle of this thing that we are walking around with is, is far more complicated than we can ever need. We don't need to invent aliens. We've got coral reefs. What the fuck? <laughs> so, like that. so I don't use the, the language of spirit i can't say whether there is or there isn't spirit and spirits and all of that i I can't know but i can know that this thing exists (laughs) and that fire exists and that's easily awe-inspiring enough for me so for me the language around the elements is is much more fundamental than that it's uh, everything we will ever know will come and go it's it's here for a moment and it's gone again you know, obviously ourselves and the trees and but also the door and the fridge and every atom it was cooked in the sun it came to be it, it you know, the best example of a creator is not the guy on the cloud with the fucking beard it's the sun it's the creator of all of this yeah so again what more do you want that's not magic i don't know what it is so for me uh, fire falls into that category. It's at the centre of the circle because it's the best ambassador of the sun and that's the best way of seeing a creator as far as I'm concerned. And we are all equidistant. 
from the creator. No one's more important than anybody else. No one's more connected. No one's more authoritative. No one's more evolved. No one's more important. Everybody, we're all just children wandering around on the earth, the same as that frog and that porcupine. <laughs> it's all the same. We're all equidistant from creation. And so we all sit equal distant from the fire. There's some people in there that have a role and so they have to keep everybody safe so they appear to have some kind of authority but only within the construct of the ceremony. They're no more important than anybody else in the, in the bigger picture. So the fire is the, the best example for me of that. I guess you could say it's like that. It's often toted as the masculine force. Personally, I, I have a bit of a problem with the, the terminology of masculine and feminine. It's a bit of a mental invention. So I don't use those kinds of words very often without a lot of definition, but in the tradition, it's cited as the main masculine force because its opposite is the water. And that's often described as the most feminine force, which I can understand the sort of poetry of that. But the reason those two elements are, uh, are in the picture is that everywhere we've ever looked where we find heat and water, we find life. Everywhere we've ever looked, as far up into the sky as we've gone, as far down into the ground as we've gone, if you've got heat and water, there's life. And so those two forces seem to be the necessary ingredient or the kind of primary ingredients for that possibility. And the other two obvious forces which appear to oppose each other is earth and air. And when you get all four of those elements in the same place, then we find life. And so from those four things appear to happen a kind of harmonic of complexity. Yeah? That if you take all the water away, it drops out. You take all the earth away, all the material substance, it drops out. You take the fire away, take the heat away, you don't get it anymore. You take the air away, it can't respire, life ceases. But when you bring all of those things together, this other waveform appears in a mysterious way. Yeah? So it's elemental in that sense, in that everything is always changing. But there's a couple of things that are consistent behind that change. And those elements are one way of describing the consistent forms. Mm -hmm. Those are nice words that, nice metaphors is, is how I think about them. Yeah, exactly. Especially um, with the word soul. I, I can talk about the soul without believing in its actual physical material existence other than in my neurons or in my brain sure. and, and and it's could be up there and down here i use the word a lot um, i never use that word i don't i don't see it I, d I don't understand what people mean by it i mean it's a bunch of synapses and and it's it's, it's a pattern of shooting of your neurons and uh but do you extend to the idea then that the soul will go on after you oh no don't I mean, unless you can somehow like download or like, like like replicate your brain or like like capture the complexity and like in a way that like. But are you talking about personality? I think it's part of it, definitely. But personality changes massively over the course of your life. Yeah, I think when I when I say soul, it's more like this: the present moment, this this the state of your of your conscience right uh -huh, now. Uh -huh. Yeah, okay. Different people can use different... Yeah, I mean, I've been having this discussion with a few people here because it's the place to have it. Mm. And I've also not been having this discussion with a few people as well <laughs> because people get very attached to this idea. When you start talking about reincarnation or ancestry, it gets a bit shaky. And yeah. so I, I tend not to use that word. But 
the, the one place where it's maybe safe to go from here is God. It's another one of those like <laughs> words, right? Like you can start to define it, what you mean by it. And also maybe if you have any idea about where he or she is. Yeah, let, let me know. So I, again, it's a word I rarely use unless it's just in phrases in, in the language. Uh, I, I draw no distinction between God and the physical. Not that the physical is all there is. Physical is made up of atoms that are something that appears to knock against each other. And clearly there's nothing actually there if you look. But something appears to have turned itself from nothing to apparent somethings. Yeah? And I like to think about that change, that original miracle, as being something's good idea yeah <laughs> so for me I, I guess I could say that the field in which all of these atoms are made of and in which they sit is conscious it chose to play this game but there's zero evidence for it it just makes me feel better than the idea that it's a barren conscienceless bunch of things that are just knocking around that attitude has led us to cut down the forests and rape children and pull the fish out of the sea and because we don't think it's got any inherent value but when if we can adopt the idea that it is playing with itself i mean the the, the way that i it was a moment for me in an ayahuasca ceremony actually that if i was that being which I am because we are all ultimately inseparable from it. If I was that being and I had infinity and eternity, what would I do? I'd play. <laughs> <laughs> and so we have hummingbirds and uh, pufferfish and porcupines and human beings and flowers and clouds. And because why wouldn't you? <laughs> so it, it lends it an inherent. Um, kind of personal or not even personal uh, 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 it lends the story warmth yeah it gives it it gives it some love and that makes me behave better within it can I prove it of course not how could I so the idea of God if, to, to get a bit more kind of sterile about it God for me is the ambient self-conscious field that decided to do this and it, uh, the human being in some way appears to be different from the other creatures I've never seen another creature marvelling at a sunset for example so there's something different about human I don't think we're the most intelligent or la 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 but there's something that we can do that can feed back deliberately into the the play we can sit back and go, wow! <laughs> and that, as, as I understand it, as a, a sort of fringe neurologist, that is the healthiest state it is possible for a human being to achieve. That awestruck gratitude, that's, like, that's when the neurons are most harmonised, that state. And that state, interestingly, is one of the common threads of all the medicine work and all the meditation work, and all the yoga work, and all the music work, and all the dance work. That sense of, wow, because that's the highest state that we can currently achieve. So God, you could say, is perhaps 
a way of achieving that state. Tuning into the ambient, wow, which is what made it all happen in the first place. Something like Could that. Could it be our purpose to, 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 to allow God to, I don't know, because there are different levels of consciousness. Um, it's, it's, I, I don't like to talk about different levels. Right? Because, are you sure. more conscious than me, right? But yeah, exactly. take a beetle, right? It's not going to marvel at the sunset. And, and, I, and I do take that distinction because, because I do eat animals. And um, I do wonder if something within us or beyond us has some kind of, I hate to use the word purpose, mm. to play out that game. If, if, if God gave us this playground, if, if, if he started the balls rolling, could we be the ones to actually make sense of that and, 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 and discover the ultimate truth behind it all? See, I, I agree with the question, but I think the question is ill-formed. I think it's the wrong way around. If we look at how the human uh, consciousness is moving across time, we actually see it degrading. So I think for hundreds and hundreds of thousands, if not millions of years, we were in that state. And that's what the Bible refers to. That's what the Quran refers to. That's what the Vedantas refer to, is this state that we were once in, where we were absolutely connected, where we hadn't fallen into a sense of separation yet, with that driving us. We were still plugged in. But because of the our more recent evolution, our neural system has started to collapse. And so we've lost the connection. It's like the, the radio has got detuned. And so now all it can hear is itself. It can't hear the bigger ambient transmission. And so we feel like we're separate. All of our senses filtered through that broken lens of consciousness show us that we're separate. Whereas rewind 100,000 years maybe, that wasn't the picture. We could see that we were connected. Was it not? I mean, um, so if you go back a uh, hundred thousand dozen years, we were living in the forest. Um, we didn't have all the all the tasks to do, all the exactly. ego to like you know you are this person because that's your job, right? But at the same time, we were concerned with survival. Um, so I'm, I'm not certain. Um, at least I, for for one, don't do not. I'm not certain that. It was the case that 100,000 years ago, we were, on average, more tuned into uh, the godly chatter. Um, I, I give you that, that in the past two, 3,000 years, we've probably gone way off the rails. And um, as evidenced by you know, our brain size, as, as evidenced by you know, our, the depression epidemic, I'll call it what you want. And it's exciting that some plant medicines can't help us get that tune back and get that get that melody chirping again um so your average normie a person out there who has never heard of peyote or, or ayahuasca um you don't know anything about a person you would probably claim that it would get them closer to that state that that divine that that that, that higher consciousness um would you claim that um, it's a beneficial thing for them where they would say after they have gone to the ceremony that it was worth it. I sit with about 20 people a month in England, which is a very small sample size. And it's very demographic specific. It's only within the culture of England and, you know, certain the kind of people, the kind of age groups that come, the kind of, um, 
wealth level that come, the kind of um, makeup of the kind of person that chooses to go to it. So it's a very small sample size. But I've never had anybody, I've never heard anybody leave and say, I'm really, I wish I hadn't done that. Everybody that leaves says they're really glad that they do it, but they're still on the tail end, which is why I had to send out this message to say to everybody, okay, so how is it now, months later? Is it still, was it a worthwhile event? And enough people wrote back and said, absolutely. But whether, uh, that, that doesn't mean it's something for everybody, for sure. Uh, it's the phrase that gets used is the medicine's for everybody, but not everybody's for the medicine. Because there's all kinds of different broken versions of the human shape out there. And there's all kinds of cultural um, stigma that would make it impossible for some people to get to it because it would just be too different from where, from the state that they're in. But my sense of things is that the more contracted and uh, crystallised our idea of what makes up the world and especially what makes up the holy and what human beings are supposed to do to fulfill that, I see less and less happiness in those that are more and more contracted. And the opposite end of the spectrum to me from that is, um, is that the plant medicine world doesn't require you to believe anything. It doesn't, it doesn't come with a doctrine. It's an experience, and you apply that experience to your Muslim background or your Zulu background or your Inuit background. It doesn't matter. You will find meaning in it. And that's, you know, thankfully, in the past five or so years, because of the psychotherapeutic research that's going on into psychedelics, it's like it's statistically so obvious within the writings that. You know, it's the most spiritual event that most of the people in those sample sizes have ever had. They, uh, even even like Vickers, it's the most spiritual event they've ever had. Vickers? Uh, priests. Right. People that are already have a connection to something. They, they believe there's something bigger out there. And yet they have a, an afternoon on LSD or mushrooms or even ketamine. And they have an experience of what they know is out there. So for me, it's it's useful for every everybody as long as they have the flexibility inside themselves to be able to allow it. But then once they allow it, they can apply it to whatever. The, 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 going back to the subject of the elements, the, the elements, you don't have to believe, in my world anyway, you don't have to believe in some mythical construct around the elements that we're talking about they're they're obviously all around us if you want to attribute them to buddha or you want to attribute them to um, whoever else Quetzalcoatl or uh, some you know mayan god or um, muhammad it doesn't matter the sense of connection is what comes through as long as you can put down your belief structures of how it should be for a moment and would you like wonder if you choose a date, you know, the 1st of June, 2024, where the entire island of Great Britain gets some plant medicine administered, right? <laughs> there would be a certain percentage of people who would go crazy, who cannot handle, 
that amount of separation from their egos and from their roles. Um, So, um, because ultimately, if you're looking for a solution here to to our to our egos taking over and to this all the ills of of our society, um, is plant medicine an answer? Could you imagine a world where enough people find their way through yoga or through meditation or through plant medicine, where we actually somehow start uh, stop the degradation the decay and and go back somewhere where we're more in a tune with who we really are the short version is no um these in our culture these substances are called medicines and the word medicine is is not indicative of a cure at all the word is used to alleviate something for a moment it doesn't solve the problem you, uh, it, as far as I can see, you could have the whole world on plant medicines forever. You haven't touched the problem. You've just managed the symptoms. It might help to have us understand that there is a problem that we are using medicines to move away from. But first of all, we need to understand as, as a culture, as a global culture, that there's a problem. And we're so busy applauding ourselves for our pretty little devices and seeming developments in economy and blah blah. We're so be- we're so in love with ourselves on those things. We haven't noticed that we are cripplingly lonely. And until we can understand that there's a problem that needs to be solved, the solution's not going to reveal itself. We're going to come up with lots of different ways of making ourselves feel better for a moment, whether that's plant medicines or crack cocaine or a big bank balance. It's all just symptom management. The problem is is neurological. Is it though? Because like from what I've understood, you, you also point at civilization itself. Because our culture, yeah. our civilization cool. is pushing us into believing ever more that it's the number of lives that counts. Sure. So so can, can cannot that be alleviated? Is that this big devil that, that cannot be slain? If, if there's like enough pockets of growing consciousness, cannot they just by an evolutionary process take over and like somehow battle this? Sure. In terms of in terms of the cultural, um, best to say this. So the way that I see it is that we have a failing neurological structure. And because we have a failing neurological structure, our, the consciousness that it portrays is inherently becoming more and more selfish. Yeah, selfish is the wrong word. Self-oriented. It's all about me. I see myself as separate from everything else. And so uh, the when you scale that up into millions and millions of people, you get a culture, which is based around that, that celebrates celebrities and celebrates wealth and celebrates... Um, dominance yeah and so if you if you have enough people that are uh, maybe a little bit more conscious but those those words are so dangerous to use that feel that it should be a different way enough of those people then you you can start to change the ambient culture but you still haven't changed the neurological state that created it yeah but it feeds back to those people who have lifted themselves up to at least see what the problem is couldn't they at least start to change their neurology so that within a community they, they could 
yeah, they could move into a different direction. There's definitely better and worse people to have in power, of course, of course. I would much rather have Kayla and Jandani at the, the head of the <laughs> world order, of course. But still, the the background picture of our shrinking brain size, which isn't over the past three, four thousand years. The, the, the biggest change in brain size happened 30,000 years ago. If you look at the fossil record, this is a long thing that's going on. And we have found plant medicines to, to slow down the problem. We've invented meditation practices to slow down the problem. But all the ancient writings tell the same story. Everything is degrading. We can't stop it. We can slow it, but we can't stop it. So, yes, we can create an environment that is more loving and more warm to ourselves. And But I am still willing for children to dig up minerals in Uganda for my phone. I'm still going to fly to Costa Rica because I want a nice, warm place to be. I don't really care about my great-great-great-grandchildren. I'm not acting from that place. And I don't see any of these uh, great proponents of social change acting from that place. There's, there's a little bit better version of what's available through following people that can, have, can create a loving environment around them. And maybe it would start to scale up. Maybe it would. Maybe it would. But maybe not at the same pace as this yeah. other energy. You know, from, from within our little bubble... Our little, you know, little conscious bubble where we, you know, we, we deliberately hang out around people that share this kind of warm, more loving atmosphere. It seems like there's this big rise in consciousness happening. And there, there is. There's lots of thousands of little bubbles of it all over the planet. But actually, the bigger bubble is people moving from the villages to the cities to join the rat race. That's the bigger picture. You know, since we found out about how much carbon we're burning... We haven't been burning less. We've burned 60% more than we did in uh, 26 years ago when, when we first started to talk about it. You know, we're not actually... But but the shift is also increasing, but <laughs> the, the slide is also increasing. So then we are doomed. Well, this is the bitch, eh? <laughs> it's a tough one. It's a tough one. And I cannot live in the environment, in myself, that says that we're doomed. Because as soon as you start to understand, as soon as you start to, let me put that differently, the most obvious next step from understanding that we're doomed is nihilism. And I can't bring myself to be an advocate for that. Something inside me is like, that isn't, that's definitely not the way to resolution. <laughs> so at the same time that on one side of the picture, I see, I can't see it going any other way. <laughs> then the biggest gun wins. That's what's coming. That's the obvious conclusion. But I can't, I can't have that image in my heart. And so I deliberately choose to, have, to, to fight for the good, to run ceremonies at great personal risk, to, uh, to run detox retreats for a living. Yeah? I, I, I'm just compelled to. It's it's a it's a conundrum. It's a conundrum. You're an optimist, and and I am an optimist too. Um, but yeah, do, do, do I couldn't those... live as a pessimist. That would be a horrible yeah, existence. Uh, <laughs> yeah, he would be a nihilist or well, exactly. suicide. Yeah, exactly. Um, on that note, mm-hmm. uh, would you mind some questions about the hardest decisions of your life? 
<clears throat> at the beginning of last year, there's a couple that jumped to mind. At the beginning of last year, I was faced with a situation that made me have to look into the consequences, the actual legal consequences of doing what I do in terms of ceremonies. And before then, I hadn't read into the sequence of events that would happen now, but I was forced to. And so I stopped everything for a while to wait for the shock to move through my system. And one of the hardest decisions that I have made is, do I continue to do this? Now that I know the, the extent of the personal risk that I'm taking, and I decided to. And that was one of the hardest decisions. But that's a very first world decision as well. Eh? That's, we're not talking about, do I starve to death or do my children starve to death? There, there's, a wonder, yeah. there's a real decision. There's a real decision. One of the hardest decisions that I've ever made, I guess, was um, when I was 32, I was living in, a, I started this permaculture community in Spain that I mentioned stop traveling and start to try to be a solution to the problem. So started up this permaculture community with some friends and then my girlfriend at the time got pregnant. And so the decision was, okay, do we have this child or do we continue with the community? Because parenting is such a full-time job. I couldn't imagine doing both. And so we decided to do the child thing, which means I had to leave behind that community and go live in England, which is where I'd been running away from for 15 years. And so that decision of giving up the dream and going to do baby instead, that was one of the hardest decisions because I was so identified with uh, I'm going to be part of the solution. And as children do, they, they kick their legs out from all those ideas <laughs> and our life goes in a completely different direction so again you know a, a pretty first world problem on the scale of what many people face today but I would say those two are really really up there there's another one that's facing me when I get back in a couple of weeks time which is again it's not quite on the same scale of those even but life's, life's full of those kinds of decisions and I guess the, the toughest ones are the ones that you feel are going to affect your life in the most with the most direction change and so even the worst decisions in that category they they are troubling to make there's a lot of consideration and la 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 but once it's made you're never going to know how it would have gone the other way so it's also once you pass that point Start. You're free. Yeah. yeah, it's history. It's just an adventure. <laughs> the parenting one, though, that was a big one for me. Mm. And um, connected question would be: so, how did it work out for you? Mm. Uh, it quickly became apparent when my daughter was born that me and her mum, who had only been together for a year or so were not meant to be together that was going to be that was going to be problematic and it became it started to become a battle between us rather than a co-parenting of a child 
and that wasn't good for anybody and so it again quickly became apparent that the best way forward for that was to separate out to live very close to each other and to overlap only um, to overlap as little as possible as was necessary to care for her and that was one of the best decisions of my life because as I was explaining the other day suddenly I had half the week off to resource myself to concentrate on my business to, to do what I needed to do to, to fulfill myself while her mum was looking after her and then when our daughter came to me I would I could be completely with her with all of my flaws and all of my insecurities I'm not saying I did it perfectly at all but I could be completely with her and her mum could then work and clean the house and take care of the things that she needed to take care of and so it would bounce like that half a week each half a week each half a week each and it was it was it was difficult at first but just at the right moment the medicine arrived in our lives arrived into my life first and then I invited her to the next one and very quickly that rearranged us to understand that she, our daughter, is the most important thing about our relationship. What we think of each other and our difficulties that we have with each other, they are not to affect our individual relationship with our daughter. And so when we understood that, life just became so much easier. We would still have our difficulties because we're very different people, but I never attempted to get in the way between her relationship and her, to her mother and she never attempted to get in the way between the relationship and me mm-hmm. and I don't mean stopping each other seeing the, our daughter I mean just uh, if I think that her mum is being really hard on her I can talk to her mum about it but I wouldn't talk to her about it and I would attempt to help her my daughter understand that that's just the nature of the relationship there and so it's, it's all just about kind of creating more ease and then eventually her mum gets a new relationship I get a new relationship and suddenly there's four parents that can all put attention into the child and that's actually closer to the village so the idea of the nuclear family and keeping the nuclear family together no that's so the wrong thing to be attached to we need as many parents and as many uncles and aunts and cousins in this mix as possible so having more parents resourced to apply attention, that's that's the way forward. So instead of, I mean, I grew up in, a, in an environment, in a culture where coming from a broken home was seen as a really bad thing, like poor you, you came from a broken home. Now I see it as, as the way forward. Break them up. <laughs> Especially if the parents aren't happy, no one needs unhappy parents. That's just a really bad role model for the child. You need happy parents, even if they're not together. All of the cultures that I've seen, which isn't many, but all of the cultures that I've seen, sort of ancient cultures, the parents don't really do the parenting anyway. They're just one of the other people that whose house the child can go and sleep out or get fed by. The, the relationship is, is actually quite thin. It's quite tenuous. The child is raised by the village in a very real sense. So the closer we can get to that, the better. I, I believe so too. And uh, in fact, we've been looking for that kind of village. Uh, oh, yeah. for, for the past couple of months and sure. we have not found that sure. and it's got us wondering if it's because it's not even theoretically possible or because if every everyone who has ever tried has failed mm. or maybe have not looked enough um have you have you 
tried to design one of those or have you tried to join one? Also, the, the community in Spain, it could it have not transformed into a, a big village of children and then parents? I would love to think that it could, but as a new parent, I didn't have the, 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 the understanding that would have need, been needed, let alone the time and the energy. And part of the problem in, in EcoForest, this place in Spain that we started up, there were eight of us involved and three of them were in a couple with three of the others and within a month of each other all three of the women got pregnant so suddenly six people disappeared so the whole thing just changed into something completely different but we were also there it was the first year we were there so it was a building site it wasn't a place to bring children into we could have if we had the resources turned it into that but it was just suddenly everything was needed at once and and it wasn't going to happen Something like here, uh, Pachamama is a, is a beautiful example, and I'm sure there's many others, where you've got lots of children kicking around and you've got a, an area that's specific to a school and people that are into doing the schooling thing. And that's a, that is a beautiful example of it. And because of how Pachamama is, it's, it's a very expensive place to be doing that. When we were... Back in England, we were looking into homeschooling because there's loads of homeschooling people around the area that we chose to live in, in England. And we could have gone down that route, but it just requires so much time. And the schools are above everything else. We talk about them as education facilities and all of that, which is really just a, a machine for making factory workers. We all know that. But... What it is above everything else is childcare service so that the parents can go and earn money because there's a a competition-based system and everybody needs to be squeezing as much money as they can just to survive. So the whole thing is designed around that. So it's very difficult to... if If you get enough homeschool parents together, then... You know, two of the parents out of the ten can have all the kids for a day and they're different too. And so everybody else is left resourced enough to go to work and earn the money that they need in order to sustain it. So there are organisations like that. Um, so it's possible, but I've, I've never seen the community side of it that worked very well. I'm sure there are examples of it. This is the best example of it I've seen, but it's very expensive. And so you need to be seriously earning elsewhere to be here. So that's what I mean. This kind of co-parenting model where you've two, parent, two parents and two parents are raising the children give because the kids go to one set of parents and leave the other set of parents to be able to earn their money for a while. And then it switches. That's the best model. But yeah, I've never seen a bigger version of it that works. I'm sure there are. I'm sure there are. But you it might need be, to be two of that's, that's what we've been doing for tens of thousands of years, apparently. It was the way for hundreds and hundreds of generations. So, so there's something in our DNA that, that, that's most compatible with that. And, and yet, Absolutely. yet nowhere, nowhere to be seen. But hunter-gatherers, on average, spend between two and three hours working a day. You know, tilling fields or hunting or making house or, you know. Today, I mean... Yeah, well, that's, that's the standard line that's wheeled out about the few hunter-gatherers that are still what around they do the, the rest of the day. Sing songs, play with the kids, hang out with each other, gossip, you know, play games. That's, that's, that's such a beautiful thing to hear uh, when I live in them. Yeah, really, everybody does. Huh? But where do you find them? You've got to go to the um, 
Sahara and go live with the Maasai or go to Canada and live with the Inuit or, you know, there's so few of them left. But that's what I mean. The culture that we are immersed in is based upon competition, not cooperation. And so you work all the hours in God's sense. Yeah. Whereas those guys were into competition, uh, cooperation. And so it doesn't take so much. Yeah, yeah. And those, call it, you know, 5,000 years of competition that's behind us, I think it had must have had a profound effect on our DNA. Yeah, think of all the, our, yeah. all the emperors who have uh, killed those guys who were too open, uh, exactly. too questioning, yeah, totally. and we end up with the kind of people who we are. Yeah. Uh, wonder yeah, what's, what's left for us. <laughs> because it is still like, it, it, ever more gearing towards this, this ultimate end of more money. Right? And yeah, I'm not seeing an end to it, but that's not the best thing about it. Yeah, right. <laughs> that's a rabbit hole. Um, people, individuals who had the most influence over your character. Uh, my character, I mean, uh, my understanding again of uh, the sort of neurology of it is the vast majority of the characters built in the first five years. So aside from my parents <laughs> and school teachers and probably a few, few bullies at school, <laughs> all of that stuff, the people that I would like to cite um, was that I went part of my travels I went to stay in Taiwan for a while to teach English and doing crazy things there to earn money <clears throat> and I was in a very dark place where I had, I'd been studying kind of the covert political policies of the big big nations and the big multinational corporations and how they dominate small countries and generate wars there and you know fund the military so that they trade with them and la 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 and I, I had so much information on that subject and I could tell stories and wheel it out and it's a very dark place to come from but it's it's very sensational and so I, I accumulated a lot of this information and I remember sitting with a guy in one of the hostels in Taiwan and he was studying Tai Chi and he was, he was just another nice guy another English guy and I remember telling him all of this, like, you know, da 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 And it didn't collapse him. Something was a bit different about him. He, he, he heard it and he was like, oh. But, you know, it's still, the forests are still growing, the birds are still singing, sort of approach. And I was like, wow, I, I, need, I need that. <laughs> I need that light in my life. And uh, so just but in that moment, I realized that it was possible to, or that I had a choice in what stories I told myself, because the stories that we tell ourselves generate the atmosphere inside us. And so in that moment, I didn't know the, to word it like that, but I noticed that he was telling himself a different story. And so I started over the years that followed to deliberately look for people that have that approach. I also still had a bit of a kind of survivalist mentality. So there were several other people in my travels. There was a German guy called Ara who was living on the islands in Taiwan, in Thailand when I was living there, who was, he lived in a cave for years. And, you know, so I, I, I'm drawn to people like that who have that kind of survival skill and practical and, and uh, kind of nature-based skills. And... The original guy eventually took me to a set of camps in England. Years later, I met him in England. He took me to a set of camps, which are basically Sufi practices. So moving meditations and um, 
and chanting and I started to have more expanded experiences through hours of these practices very very beautiful profound practices and then so that led me onto a much more sort of defined spiritual path I guess you could say I'd already been involved in the yoga and the meditation and the the uh, tai chi and all of that stuff that's how I met him but that was more about clearing your own energy field and uh, gaining more personal energy and living longer and being healthier whereas these practices sort of skyrocketed me to connect with something else that wasn't involved in that or appeared to be separate from that somehow obviously later I learned it wasn't it's all the same thing but that ultimately sent me on the quest that led me to be invited to the ayahuasca circles and the person that in, that first hosted the ayahuasca circles I, I uh, got to know him quite well and he's, he's a very beautiful man to listen to and then ultimately from him to Kwautli who handed me the altar and has no doubt had the biggest impact on my life as it is today just because of the clarity of his understanding of if you tell yourself that story you're going to generate that energy inside yourself and that's the feeling that's the atmosphere that you're going to approach the world from if you change that story to a different story then you're going to approach the world from that place so it's that kind of the clarity of explanation and the beauty of of the lineage that he carries and his eloquence in being able to describe it because he speaks english as well as spanish which is a blessing and so the philosophy that that all of the purity work sits in or his line of purity work sits in and how that creates a full philosophy for life so the person that i am now has been most recently and therefore most powerfully affected by him uh, there will be loads of others along the way i would also point to other seemingly minor players in like um my fireman uh, in the teepees in England, a young guy, 35, called um, Alex, and my major doorman, Archie, who's here at Pachamama with me this year, um, he's 33, but the because of the philo- philosoph- philosophical background that I now have through Crowley, I understand why those guys are the way they are and recognise how I was in that phase of life they're called peelies in that language which is the the energy of the young men that want to do they want to be active they want to build and if you don't focus them then they become destructive you know it's just the nature of young men but if you can focus that energy then you can build cities with that energy if you don't focus that energy then you destroy cities and so not to say that I focused them, but they were drawn to this type of medicine work because they're looking for they're, they're good guys and they recognize that they need to focus that energy. And that's had a major influence on me because I've understood through this philosophy the movement of energy in them and I'm drawn to it. I don't see myself as older than them at all. I, I hang out with young people because I see myself as quite young. And I think that hanging out with young people keeps you young hang out with old people, you get old. That's my latest philosophy. And so hanging out with this peely energy, it keeps me very active. You know, I'm, I'm the first one on site. I'm the first one putting up the TV. I'm the last one there. I'm the last one taking it down. I'll be on my knees all night. I'll play all the songs. 
I'll be the first one on the dance floor and the last one off because that's what I want to encourage in myself. And so there's all kinds of philosophical or um, influential people in my life just because of how they are. They don't necessarily have to have a big philosophical standpoint, but I'm drawn to them and that that feeds me in some way. But I guess the most obvious person most recently is Crowley and he's... Uh, some people would call him my mentor or my teacher. Uh, some people use words like initiation. He initiated me, gave me the permission to run. He doesn't use any of those words and neither do I. He's a friend of mine and he uses the same word. He, he, he's just a brother of mine. There's no permission. There's no authority. We're all just children on the earth. No one can tell anybody else what to do. And so he is not a keeper of these ancestral ways. He's a sharer of these ancestral ways, and I adopt that mentality completely. Sharing is the best evidence of a sense of abundance. If we, we could have millions and millions and millions and millions of dollars, but if we don't feel like it's enough, we keep it to ourselves. We can have $10, but if we feel a sense of abundance, we share it. And so sharing is the best evidence of a sense of abundance, and he has that better than anybody I know. But your mum also has that in many, many strata. They, they share everything they can. There's a little, few little quirks here and there that I want to feed back to them because the people at the top may not even know how Pachamama functions at the grand level. So they want to feed that back to them. But this place is a really good example of that. And so my urge to, to share comes from that philosophy. And it's, it's just a beautiful way to live one's life, to share. That's what, 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 what better attitude is there. Amen. <laughs> so there's lots of big influences in there, oh. but there's a few kind of key players that have steered my life at critical junctions. And the other one that needs to go definitely get mentioned, but is a very different way, is my daughter. A massive influence in terms of the direction of my life. So, uh, but there's less that kind of needs to be said there because it wasn't a philosophical standpoint that came from her. It was the effect upon my life that generated a philosophy of just how to deal with this influence in the first place, you know. Okay, I need to, if this isn't about me suddenly. This, my life is not about me anymore. Oh, fuck. <laughs> Grieve that one over the years because it keeps coming up and feed that space with joy and uh so the, the philosophy that I had to adopt around it was uh, to come to an understanding that this is the most, I hate this word and I've used it four times already, the most spiritual event that any human being can ask for. You know, many, many people, mostly men, it has to be said, renounce the world, renounce women, renounce wealth, and they go up onto a, into a monastery on a mountainside somewhere and try to achieve a sense of, um, selflessness or uncom unconditional love or understanding the chain of events in which they sit, trying to generate these big pictures. All of those things are inherent in parenthood. Unconditional love, God, big time. And understanding where you are in the chain of your generational line that you have now given life to someone that will give life to someone that will give life to someone. And you won't even be remembered in three generations, but you're in there. Suddenly, it's not about you. You are a part of a chain. Oh, so big and so beautiful and so connecting. 
to the to the humility of what having a life is. Some people need to go up onto mountainsides to understand those things, but it's inherent, inherent. Everything's right there. And so, in many ways, of course, she's the most influential thing in my life. But it's ain't easy, man. <laughs> Plenty of grieving on that path. <laughs> Um, any people who um, who were influential that you've never met? Um, most obvious one that springs to mind would be Bill Mollison, who's the person that came up with permaculture. Permaculture is just a way of seeing how things inter- interact together in a particular system and understanding that that energy is already there. So how can we make use of it? Because it's already there. Like the sun passing across the land, how can we make use of it to heat our homes or cool our homes or... You know, these big forces are already there. People talk about permaculture with the most connection to agriculture, but it's actually it's just a complete philosophy of life. So he would be one of the most obvious ones. Um, there's going to be plenty of people that I've never met, uh, like the people that handed the altar to Quoutley, the, who then handed it to me, and all of those lines of people. Um, yeah, I mean, there's so many big names out there. But in, in terms of smaller names, people that I have a smaller connection with that I've never met. Yeah, no one's leaping to mind. There's all kinds of names that are clustering around, but I don't know that anybody else would even really know those names, and they're just more like uh, philosophical influences. People like Buckminster Fuller, who you could say is part of the permaculture line. But again, just a way of seeing systems at work um, yeah my parents parents all the way back to the original amoeba <laughs> yeah there's so many huh? there's another phrase in this line from the Nahuatl language in Balinwani which means to stand on that which is below so basically everything that has had to happen for me to be here It's a beautiful phrase. We stand on the backs of giants. You know, it's always good to remember that. Here comes the blank check question. You get as much dollars as you want, but it must be one thing. And how much do you want? It would definitely, I mean, unless we're talking about, you know, sort of world change, it would definitely be to do essentially what what Pachamama has done. The community that I left 24 years ago in order to raise a daughter would now be 24, hmm. which is the same age as Pachamama. And I was sitting holding the fire a year ago when I was here in the ceremony, and I just let my daughter go. I just put her on a bus going south, and I realized when I was holding the fire, Kayla had the tobacco, and I realized that, wow, this community is the same age as the community that I would have built had I not had my daughter. And when I had my daughter, I said, okay, I'm going to go to England, and when my active parenting is done, I'm going to go back to the sun and continue. And the, a week after I put her on a bus in Costa Rica, I was holding the fire in the ceremony in a community the same age as the one that I had given up. So it was all very beautiful. So no doubt it would be to start something like Pachamama, um, with an emphasis very similar to Pachamama, except it would be much more ecologically self-sustaining. 
I know it's very sustainable because they have electricity from a very sustainable source because Costa Rica is what it is. But it, for me, it would be more important for all of those cycles to be more in-house and also to have more emphasis on a particular stream of medicine work that we haven't really spoken about because it requires much more definition, but it is very much about resurrecting this uh, dissonant neural situation that we've got going on but it's all the same work ultimately it would be it would be self-realization self-understanding and self-management tools much like Pachamama already do and medicine work and uh, move towards being more self-sustaining and I would imagine that to do that it would be something in the region of 10 million maybe 20 million it's difficult to estimate these days because everything's spiraling especially especially in costa rica but to be honest at the end of all that phrase i wouldn't want to be the person at the top of the pyramid <laughs> <laughs> i'm not very good up there those stresses are a very different set of stresses than those than the philosopher that can dream up the idea again why i have so much respect for these guys because they've not only done it but they continue to do it but yeah, it would be something along those lines. It would be a, a touch more than Pachamama in terms of it would be, it would have big laboratory facilities that could look at what is happening consciously, neurologically, to prove in science that this creates a healthier brain structure. So that science has to understand that the thing that we're using to measure everything else is a bit fucked yeah and it can it's correctable so it would have whole it'd have a whole laboratory wing with people wired up to mris and and ecgs using different techniques and different plants if necessary and different ways of engaging with each other that would generate feedback loops so that we could see what is creating the greatest neurological harmony. Whoa. So maybe we need to add another zero to the end of that figure. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, an MRI machine itself. Wouldn't it? Exactly, exactly, yeah. And then someone to operate it at $400 an hour or whatever they own. <laughs> so yeah, All right. it's probably quite a big bill, but it would be fantastic toys to play with. <laughs> It could be the scientists just playing around with the machines and somebody could do the talks. And There would be a lot of different people doing a lot of different things. Mm. And But again, I wouldn't be... I don't, I don't consider myself the top of these pyramids at all. There is one other person that should definitely go on that uh, influencers line, which is a guy called Tony Wright, who I've been playing with in neurological experimentation for many, many years, like 20 years or so. Um, we played around with sleep deprivation. He holds the world's record for sleep deprivation just to publicize his work and um, different psychedelics and different practices eye gazing and and being around stone circles and things like that all for very scientific reasons all the mumbo jumbo and the fluffy stuff is, is not in the picture at all but the science of what works in terms of generating more neurological harmony and he would be the head of that whole wing of of its endeavours because he's the most brilliant person I know on mm. many, many levels. 
so he's a massive massive influence of mine and um, yeah I still work with him I still play with him and we still do amazing things together it gets very strange when Tony and I and buddies get together with very pure medicines and very pure crystalline structures and, and very specific experimentation to do it's also hysterical you guys crystalline structures as in actual crystals yeah chunks of amethyst we find to be the strongest do they work when uh, so there's a much bigger description behind all of this but when you stay awake that little chattery thing in our head that's constantly in the picture has to fall asleep its influence gets less and less and less which is why it's so hard to stay awake if you can stay awake then that fades out which means its influence its um, interference patterns the waveforms that it creates in the brain get less and less and less and so the brain can start to harmonize with itself and then bring in something that amplifies and harmonizes those uh, waveforms inherently so something like plant medicines but the cleanest one is LSD and so that generates a more harmonious neurological synchrony between all the waves and when you're in that state which is already a very very different state you can start to attune your own resonance to a bigger resonance field and those crystals because they're a single molecule all resonating at the same level can start to pull you into a different state which is why we use crystals industrially yeah? because they have a particular waveform so we're just hooking into that and there are particular places on the earth where those waveforms are more powerful and so as we've started to lose these sensitivities as our mind has kicked in more and more and we get more and more interference in the brain so we're not so sensitive to the world around us this is all this degeneration that i was talking about earlier we've we've started to lose our sensitivity to these more special places on the earth and so we noticed this 10,000 years ago we noticed we were losing sensitivity and so we dragged fucking great chunks of granite to these places to mark them so that we knew where to head back to because when you put yourself in those you start to feel better slowly slowly but we've lost most of our sensitivity so we don't even notice it anymore why did they drag fucking great chunks of granite you could have used just bits of flint that are kicking around but they chose to drag granite from hundreds of miles away granite is very silicon dioxide rich it's very crystalline rich it has particular resonance of its own so it adds to the natural resonance that's in that place then we gather we take we, we chant we, we sing we dance for days so to keep us awake so all the dancing practices all the chanting practices <laughs> The interference in our left hemisphere starts to fade, so we become more sensitive. And then we take specific plants to harmonize the resonance field, and then we engage with each other, eye contact. And we get the biggest resonant generator on the planet, the human brain, connected to another resonant generator, and they start to resonate higher and higher and higher frequencies, and the world becomes a very strange place. <laughs> You start to see the resonance fields that make up the universe. That's it. And you are not looking at somebody else because there is no somebody else because you are now resonating with the background field of the universe. So you're looking at yourself, looking at yourself, looking at yourself, looking at yourself. It's a very different thing. 
<laughs> which is why I talk about the neurology of these things and the degeneration. Yeah. Every ancient culture says we have been degenerating. Every ancient culture says that we were once gods. We've gone through something that happened, thrown out of the Garden of Eden or the role of the Yugas or the end of the Golden Age or the fall from grace. Every single culture on the planet has the same creation myth. They all say the same thing. We were once like that. We lived virtually forever. We were invincible. We had telekinesis. We, we ate only what was good for us. We were swinging around through paradise, having a lovely time. And then something happened and we started to bitch and fight and become separate. And we will destroy everything from that state. Every single culture says the same thing. Our current sort of hippie idea is, oh, there's a lot more consciousness coming and we're going to solve all the problems. That's not what any of the ancient cultures say. Yeah, interesting. Interesting, fascinating, and uh, especially the part with it with the crystals. We're going to talk more about that, you know. <laughs> yeah, because, but, but yeah, because 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 crystals do have like an inherent like resonance, right? Exactly. And, and and your brain does as well. And uh, with all these electromagnetic waves around us, it's sure. it's, it's a whole other level of like how our you know um, sensitivities are, are being messed with. Um, I'll. I'll, I'll Pick the thread, thread up later, maybe. <laughs> um, yeah, that's a really big subject, that um, one. It's a bit off off topic. <laughs> but you started. <laughs> I'm seeing myself like a, in the middle of Stonehenge, like like chanting with, with, with some dude right now and like like seeing all these colors around me. Right? Oh, um, yeah. It's big. So, so to come back to this blank check question where it all started, um, could you apply this like on maybe like on a global level? What this laboratory idea, or anything really, like like something that doesn't just you know like like put some science out that someone may or may not read, or like some some people would join, you know, like you would get like semi famous or something. No, something that would put you as part with Putin, something like that. So, uh, even if we created something as big as Osho did in his heyday. Yeah, massive, great, like muddy ranch in the States. Mass, thousands of people living there, all doing these practices. And 20 years later, it was gone. Because the ambient culture is so against this awakening process. Because they're scared. They're just scared of it, that's all. And so I don't think it would be worthwhile to create a Pajamama, for example. That is just its own little bubble. Because... Ultimately, these bubbles will collapse because the picture outside is getting more and more degenerated as there's war inevitably out there, it would seem, going by the statistics. So I don't see that it's really worthwhile creating a little bubble. Beautiful to live in and, and house a few people, and even if a few people was a few million people, it's still not enough. The ambient culture has to be influenced, and that's what the laboratory side of it is for. Because if you can convince science that this is a mess, then science will attempt to solve it. No, because what science is, is a useful tool for Moloch, the money man, Uncle Joe to build bigger weapons. As soon as science sure. stops being that and becomes this conscious machine, that, that, that the consciousness machine, I should say, that generates more hippies that are against the wars, then it stops being useful for for, for its purpose. So like I, I do not think that, that you could like approach it that way. I think you have to bring 
bring bigger guns, but on a level, like on a, on a, on a, on a I don't know, stepping in back, in, in, in the back where it doesn't, I, I have no idea what, what I'm trying to say here, but like. I agree, I agree. <laughs> but I can't come up with a better solution. If we can show, if science is forced to admit that the what we currently think is the most amazing thing could be far more amazing if it was in its best condition, then I think it would seek to create that long before it discovered that when it's in its highest condition, you don't need walls anymore. All right, so imagine like you read the news tomorrow, um, or you're like, like say on like an Instagram post, you know, uh, scientists have discovered, you know, uh, that, that you could be like, you know, 10x more uh, happy. It's I don't think I don't think it would come from that. I think it would come from um, okay. Uh, Non-local communication has now been solved, which is another way, is a sciencey way of saying telepathy has just been rediscovered. Has it been? Uh, the send me the paper. The, well, the science has uh, has shown that you can have two things at distance that instantly will communicate with each other. We I haven't mean, worked out how to make the communication a communication device yet, but we've shown that those things are possible. Whereas 10 years ago, that was like 30 years ago, whatever it was, that was like a stupid idea. You get kicked out of school for saying such things. Entanglement is what you're talking about. Huh? The quantum entanglement. Yeah, entanglement. Yeah, there you go. So my point is that currently these ideas are um, unthinkable, but if they become provable, then the, the, the attitude within science shifts a very deep level. And so long before you start solving wars or no, no longer needing guns, you need to be able to show that things that we thought were impossible in the human brain suddenly become understandable. And then the background picture is, okay, how can we solve the problem that the brain has? And as a way to doing that, it start, what you'll start to show up eventually is that the people that are at the top of these hierarchies, uh, the further up the hierarchy you are, the more it, it, it's an indicator of how damaged the brain is. But then they would want to close it down. But then you've shown that the ones going at the top of the triangle are the most damaged. So should we be letting them drive the bus? And it's just which way it happens first, whether the ambient culture shifts to, shit, those people shouldn't be no, flying the plane. People know that already. <coughs> Look at Trump. Who, who, for whom is it not obvious that he is, is a damaged person, right? Still, people vote for him. But he's not the person that runs the world. The corporate leaders are the ones that run the world and nobody votes for them. They are put in power by the nature of the economic structure that's in place. By money itself, basically. Exactly. So if we start to understand that the better this thing starts to feel, the less things it needs, then the more their power uh, pyramid starts to flatten out. Yeah, but as long as there's one guy left who's damaged, who still thinks there it is. power is good. There so it is. So you need to change every single got... last one. Exactly. This is this is the conundrum. 
This is exactly right. I argue this with Tony all the time, the guy who introduced me to all of these things. I argue this with him all the time. You'd have to change every Arab sheikh and every militia member in Africa, all the cartel members in Mexico. How are you going to get to them? It's not going to happen. But the, his answer is always the same. What else is there to do but fucking try? Mm-hmm. What are we going to do? Give right. up and let it go down? So right. yeah, yeah, we can argue about it all day. Let's <laughs> just fucking get on with it and find out. <laughs> and in the meantime, we're going to have a lovely time. Because while you're doing these experiments and you're massively elevated and expanded on sleep deprivation and and resonant, resonating with each other, it's gorgeous. Our natural inherent state is joyous and awestruck so even if we fail we've had a lovely time <laughs> there's no reason to not oh yeah that's the bottom line <laughs> and that's okay, so what so I love can... about the medicine part is even when we're in there doing it it's, we are much closer to our natural state which is more top end neurotransmitters giving us a feel good experience it's beautiful it's beautiful uh-huh. yeah well you know I could not agree more <laughs> But so still, like, yeah, so here's your blank check. If if you got a couple extra zeros on there, don't matter. You just need the one perfect lab with perfectly tripping people who give give us the truth, the true truth about how we should get ourselves into sync with the universe. That's what, that would be my aim, like a like a psychedelic ashram in a fruit farm. That work. <laughs> and a laboratory. <laughs> that would work. That'd be beautiful. But, you know, it's probably a long way off. My answer uh, has been, and still yeah, has been, uh, space exploration. So I'm a big aficionado of going out to the stars and instead of trying to fix Earth's problems, get as many planets and stars seated with the light of consciousness as we can and hope for one to to make it there and 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 be the light for the entire galaxy to to live by to to follow um i think space exploration is very underrated um do you have any opinions on that you wanna have you ever thought of space exploration and how useful useless it is yeah i mean the, the bottom line is we've we've yet to we're generating so many problems here i can only see that we would take those problems with us especially because the people that are the ones that tend to be propelled out into space are usually the most disconnected. They're the most intellectualized, the most educated. Exactly, which is why I think it's like a, it's a wonderful solution because you don't have to like find this other solution to like, like convert everyone. Just flow with what you have, which is this, this your mind basically, and you use your mind to the fullest with a lot of caffeine and a lot of other drugs to, to keep you going and, and, and just like make the most masculine type of adventure going out to the stars with rockets and hope that somehow just by the numbers because by the time you colonize a billion different planets maybe just maybe on one the way things work and history will like arrange it so that that's gonna be the perfect you know heaven for for beings. Yeah. I see what you mean, You're creating the most opportunities for something like that to arise. Yeah, I do, I do see that. It's an insanely expensive business in terms of the atmosphere. What do you mean? Rocket fuel is oh, yeah. insanely expensive in terms of the amount of carbon it releases. 
Yeah, yeah I mean, it's, so it's like like zero point zero one percent of all fuel burned on Earth. But yeah, sure. I get you. Currently, currently, <laughs> <laughs> uh, the resources that go into it, I think we could easily put into more. I don't mean sort of humanitarian ideas. I mean into solving the actual problem that there is if you don't if you if that's not on the agenda if we don't understand that there's a problem here then zipping off to all kinds of other places and taking that problem with us seems like a good idea but if we understand what the problem is the problem is not the ideas we, we could solve all the problems with the ideas we've already got the problems the thing that's generating the story and so that's where i would put those resources yeah 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 would you not like put one percent aside for some rocket stuff That's an interesting question. Um, In fact, zero point. Like I, I did the cal- I run the numbers, and zero point one percent of global GDP would basically give space exploration enough cash to colonize Mars within a hundred years, like like full on, like millions of people there. It's an interesting. Zero point one percent. Considered it like that. Well, what percentage <laughs> would I give to that kind of exploration? Um, Yeah, I don't, I don't know the answer. I'd have to give that some serious consideration. Given that it is such a tiny percentage of the resources that are available, it might be interesting just to explore it just in the same way that it might be interesting to explore the surface of the ocean. Oh, yeah, yeah, that, that's a big one. I, yeah. I would definitely give it another 0.1%. <laughs> at least. Right? Exactly, exactly. But for me, the, the hope would come from how we could use science to understand what is actually going on up here. That's that's where I see the the hope for humanity. That's the lowest hanging fruit for you. Yeah, yeah right. No, I, I'm with you. I think it's 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 yeah. But then since I've imagined myself in Stonehenge, I want to be part of it. <laughs> and you know, and as Musk is so such an advocate of, in a, a few billion years, we're going to need to leave anyway. Oh, yeah, because yeah. the expanding sun, so it's probably we got so, half a billion. Yeah. There you go. So it's probably quite useful to to have an exit strategy at some point for sure. Uh, yeah. yeah, or we'll meditate ourselves into. Yeah, uh, maybe by location will be a, a thing by then. Teleportation, why not? <laughs> we are now coming to understand through our modern sciences that uh, the brain is very dissonant two separate hemispheres and they're both working very different ways and the biology seems to suggest and certainly uh, evolution seems to suggest that they were once much more harmonized and our individual experience reflects that as well because we have this very separate sense of self that is warned against in all the ancient scriptures and all the ancient scriptures talk about a time when we were much more connected and much more um empathic and generous and um, human that uh, was fading away and they all wrote about that we were kicked out of the Garden of Eden all of that story and so it, it ties the ancient scriptures together in with the modern neurological understandings of how the brain works and our own personal experience of, of life as a human being today so all of that is it's waiting to be normalized and uh, accepted at the general sciency level and hopefully that filters down into a cultural level and we can start to make some changes like you said there's all kinds of politics that will go against it of course because the people in power like power which is a symptom of their brokenness but um, another 
aspect that was written about, another thing that was written about in all ancient scripts, is the use of different practices and different plants that help to harmonize these hemispheres. Helps us to feel better, feel more connected, feel um, to come from a place of love and all of that uh, sort of spiritually kind of stuff. It's all all in the writings about these various practices and they all interestingly everything from meditation to ayahuasca they all generate additional chemistry that the brain is struggling to generate which create harmony between the two hemispheres and so all of that is again it's all just part of that story and some time ago 10 20 30,000 years ago whenever it was we started to get hold of or, or make use of plants around us that contain the chemistry that generates this harmony between the hemispheres and we see that reflected in just the, uh, uh, every culture in its history up until very recent times has been quite obsessed with all kinds of plants that generate altered states of consciousness and the reason for that is because we don't feel very good as we are and so we also see that in the course of a of a person's life in modern society which is focused on separation and individualization and left the average person in our culture feeling very isolated and very competed against and all of that stuff. And so as we go through teenagehood and we start to develop a greater sense of will, we naturally start to reach for consciousness altering substances. And uh, historically, ancestrally, tribally, I guess you could say, all of that was accounted for. There's all kinds of initiations that people go through as they go through stages of maturation and they get introduced to these medicinal plants that help us to not feel so separate basically to help us to engage and belong to the to the tribe that we're surrounded by we don't have that in our culture but still our youth reach for it we have pretty much everybody unless they were had such a suppressive family or religious structure that they weren't uh, allowed to everybody reaches for whatever's around them so cannabis and LSD and MDMA and ketamine and that is the most obvious one that is allowed to us but alcohol works on a very different premise alcohol doesn't generate the kind of chemistry in the higher end centers of the brain that unify the two hemispheres alcohol is a sedative it's an anesthetic and so it helps us to numb rather than solve the abyss between our hemispheres and therefore we're allowed it because it doesn't generate altered states of consciousness that question what is uh, the ambient culture we don't question it we fall into line with it because it's an anesthetic is what it's there for so uh, on uh, on the one hand you can see that you know drug use in youth creates a lot of damage because we're not actually talking about plants anymore. We're suddenly talking about extracts of plants. So you start talking about heroin, crack cocaine, then talking about a very different chemical substance. And that's where the problems are. But everything, all the drugs, if you like, get lumped into that category and everything's made illegal. Whereas all the previous generations prior to 1920 had access to all kinds of interesting um, ways of making ourselves feel better. So personally, I don't differentiate between LSD and San Pedro. I don't differentiate between MDMA and peyote in terms of its usefulness. Its chemistry is 
equally unifying to the hemispheres. And so while I facilitate the use of BOD, and I, I talk at length in with reverence and gratitude for the, the people that held these medicines before me, but I also celebrate and make use of all those other ones if they are actually useful. So I just wanted to kind of unify that back up, that when I'm talking about medicines, I'm talking about anything that helps, anything that's useful. Part of the problem with how we grow up in our culture is there's no structures that hold the use of those things. There's no ceremonies built around them. So we're left kind of flailing around in the dark in this bewildering experience. And that's a great loss. And so if, uh, I guess if the prohibition of LSD hadn't have happened in the, in the 60s and 70s, probably by now, 50, 60, 70 years later, we would see more structured, formalized, ritualized, safer use of these, of these materials. Um, so, yeah, I just like to kind of tie all that back together with a compassionate view. Um, that ties it all together uh, with plant medicine, but something that maybe is less common knowledge is, is your work on other ways of getting there, right? Um, at the end, it's all chemistry. We have established that, but uh, interestingly, you can, you have all the chemistry inside of you. You just have to get it out, get it, get it, get it working. So um, all these other ways, um, breathing fast, doing breath work, um, sleep deprivation, mm. um, and all this crazy stuff um, that's, that, that's, that's even more fringe. Can you touch on those? And in particular, with an emphasis of how you measure the goal that they are supposed to, to, to reach and what is exactly the goal. Then. Yeah, it's an interesting question because it's still being uncovered what the, what the actual goal is. There are, there are ideas out there about what the uh, what a more unified set of hemispheres in our head would function like and what it would feel like and what it could do that we currently can't do. There's, there's ideas out there. And those ideas are very enticing. They, are, you know, they, they incite us to, to move towards them. But a big part of it for me is, is these ancient scriptures, which our culture mostly just kind of poo-poos them. They're just like the writings of barbarians or whatever. But it's, it has to be noted at some point that all of these cultures, separated by oceans, all spoke about the same higher states of, you know, a sense of unified feeling and compassion and longevity and overall health and all of that. They, all of them, all write about that. So the next thing to look at for my mind is the practices that they were using. And all of these practices are in all of the oldest texts. So, for example, the oldest writings in Europe, the oldest story in Europe is the Epic of Gilgamesh, the journey into the underworld, Orpheus and the underworld has many different names these days. But his task in order to reach immortality was to do four different tasks for a week each. And the one that he failed on was staying awake for a week. But the fact that that's in these old writings and you go to the other side of the planet to uh, the Americas, and the point of a vision quest, for example, four days, no food, no water, no medicines, and no sleep. That's, that's in the mix again. Why is it in there? If it's, these days we think about sleep, uh, we become very attached to sleep because it's a time when the body can clear all the amyloid particles out of the brain and la, 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 la. And so no one's suggesting that you never sleep. 
But what happens if you don't sleep for a while? What happens to the mind? Do it. Watch. It's a very interesting experience. And eventually it fades. And you're left with something that doesn't have a mind in the, in the driving seat anymore. And so lots of things become available. Uh, also in both of those um, cultures that I'm speaking about in that moment, um, fasting is in there. Fasting is a terrible idea. It's starvation. And then suddenly science is getting behind it. And oh, it's actually quite a good idea now. Um, and it's all in these ancient texts, along with consumption of very powerful particular plants, the sort of king and queen of each line are the psychedelics. But often people have to go through um, cleansing processes before they can use those plants, because a lot of those plants are also very, very poisonous. And you can't just give them to the average person. So there's all kinds of like a uh, priesthood that you have to go through before you can be in that place. And the use of you know particular building shapes made of particular materials in particular places that all accentuate these um, effects. So what we are talking about with an effect is uh, at one level it's I was uh, at one level it is a sense of connection, which could just be a drug-induced delusion. Who can tell? We don't re- we won't really know until science start strapping machines to people that can reach these states, which has been done with meditators, for example. They have put monitors on the brains of long-term meditators, and you do see interesting changes in neurochemistry. And that interesting change in neurochemistry is mimicked in the use of psychedelics. And we know that psychedelics unify the signals that are coming from the brain. You get a lot more connections. You get neurogenesis, but above all, you get neuroharmony neurosynchrony it's called where neurons start firing in waves rather than individual patterns you start getting whole waves traveling across hemispheres and that feels from the other side that feels very nice it feels like i would imagine we should feel you know if we and if we kind of buy completely into the the caveman idea where food's very scarce and we're having to battle each other to survive and go hunting and if you buy into that idea, which most culture does because we, we see the world in terms of lack, then you see a monkey brain that's got bigger and has just got better at competing and we should be competing. That's one very thin window on the many ways of understanding our evolution. If we look back at all the ancient uh, historical references and writings for how nature used to be before we industrialized the planet, you don't see lack at all. You see the sky going dark for four days with a single flock of birds that flew over. You see so many bison that you can't see through the herd. That's not something that incites competition. That's something that incites plenty and therefore relaxation. So you get a very different picture of how the human being may have evolved and what the brain structure was evolved to do. It wasn't through this window. It doesn't appear to have been evolved to take advantage and get one over on your neighbor it's it's there because it's a gorgeous thing and so the more we can move our consciousness and our ideas of what the human beings for towards that then the more we can explore the higher centers of the brain we know that under stress those higher functions of of humanity things like empathy and listening and imagination and creativity they all disappear under stress we 
when you take the stress away, and we're talking like ambient stress, like trying to pay the mortgage, take all those stresses away because you've created more food than anybody needs, and then suddenly all those higher symptoms start to light up and life becomes a very different endeavor. So if we had the interest in strapping those machines to people who were achieving those states by whatever means, then we would get a very different picture of what the brain is for and what the human being is capable of. And from the inside, from experiencing some of those things, like I said, we, we along with Tony, we do put together a little, or he puts together little protocols that we follow with great joy of a couple of days of sleep deprivation, hanging out around big chunks of crystalline quartz, hanging out in places on the earth where people have, for some apparent reason, dragged huge great chunks of granite to mark particular spots under great effort 10,000 years ago things start to happen, things start to change. And it's very difficult to describe the consciousness changes, the experiential changes that happen, because we just don't have the words for it. We, we've never attempted to map that landscape in English. So it's very difficult. But if you look at the ancient scriptures, you look at Vedic pictures or Vedic writings about the states that it is possible for those people to achieve. So all the, the, the um, Vedantic pictures of like, Shiva and Ganesh and Krishna and Rama, they're holding weapons in their hands is how they're spoken about. But they're weapons like conch shells and little spinning discs. They're not very useful in war, but they're all resonance devices. The trident that Shiva holds, you hit that on the ground and it goes boom. Yeah, they're all resonance devices. So... That seems to tell us that the war wasn't against other human beings. The war was against the dissonance that was happening and anything that we can use from the outside that generates resonance. You know, why would people carve out a room-sized hole inside a massive great piece of granite? They're not going to live there. That's ridiculous. But you go inside a piece of granite like that and anybody, even my grandmother, would walk in there and go, oh, that feels nice because this did it for a reason. Because you sit down, you meditate in there, you smoke a particular thing in there, or you have a particular breathing practice in there, or whatever, and consciousness changes, and it feels good. It's not about escaping, it's about harmony, resurrecting itself in the overall field. So all of those practices that I've spoken about, they're all in the ancient scriptures, and that's what really interests me. I've been given a lot of this love by the person that I work with, and he's very he's a master of analogy, and his work is the most profound thing I've ever come across. But the point of the operation, until we get these big machines strapped onto people, the point of the operation is it just feels so profound and so like it should feel. So what direction should we point an average listener was enticed by this. Like, where, where, where are the low-hanging fruits? What is the thing that Joe can do tomorrow to get a glimpse of that, to get, like, there's just something there? Probably the, the key factors are, are many-fold, and there's many different ways of doing it. The most obvious thing is the biggest, the biggest inhibitor in our lives against all of these things are the stresses in our lives. So... The obvious thing was would be, you know, give up jog, go live in a forest. I'm not actually advertising that anybody does that, but there's certain things that are already in our way just in the ambient culture that 
you have to work a long time to get around. But in terms of daily practices, simple things, and they're all in the ancient scriptures. Um, meditation, just spending time without the outside world influencing. And just, yeah, you're going to be thinking away, and you're going to be complaining about your back, and la, 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 la. And just spending time with that, because the less our thoughts are dominating us, kind of finding the space in between our thoughts and letting them rest, then the more the system can harmonize in itself. It's not a solution to anything unless you get really, really good at it for a really, really long time. So it's not a solution for anything, but it creates fertile ground. Uh, The use of psychedelics, and obviously uh, anybody that is engaging with that needs to be needs to have all the usual cautions around their own mental stability and the situations that they find themselves doing it in and all of that. The best place to do anything like that is with others so that you can watch each other's back and in nature. Come out of the nightclub and spend time in the forest with a couple of buddies and a guitar and some uh, uh, something that is useful to elevating and expanding and relaxing. And you, you will have a lovely time anyway. So I'm starting to tap in on some of the phrases I use in the ceremony world. You're going to have a lovely time anyway. So how about you sit with each other and just eye gaze for a while. Just explore. What is that like? It's just another person. It's a mate of yours. But to hold eye contact, that makes the talky little thing in our head that's so inhibited, it makes it go, ooh, that's, that's weird. I don't like that. <laughs> and it's useful to explore. And at first, you're going to get melting faces and all of that kind of blah, blah. But if you just continue, just continue, you'll start to generate some kind of resonance with the other person and coherence. Um, and that gets quite profound quite fast. If you could have stayed up a couple of days beforehand, da, 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 go do it in a stone circle. Woo, now we're on the money. But not everybody has access and time. So um, another big factor in this, which isn't so much a part of the medicine world these days, but for me as as a borderline biologist and someone who runs detox retreats and holds the nutritional talks on the detox retreats nutrition is a huge part of it and there's so many misconceptions out there about nutrition especially when you're talking about the higher functions of the brain so um eating uh, the simple way is minimize our starches so grains beans potatoes minimize them get them out eventually but minimize them they've come in into our diet very recently and they're a great way of filling up a population and keeping a population alive but that's got nothing to do with nutrition that's economics what the body's looking for what the body's looking for has not changed in hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of thousands of years and it's looking for things that are much simpler than than those kinds of carbohydrates so reducing starches bringing in more fruit more leaves that's the kind of main trick because when you reduce those fillers, you're going to be hungry more often. So you're going to be eating more food, which means you're going to spend more money, which is why the starches are in there in the first place because we don't spend so much money on food. So there's all kinds of limiting factors around what we can do. But definitely spending time in nature, spending time quietly, um, the discerning use of psychedelics and uh, engaging in a diet that slowly slowly cleans the body of the backlog i would say they're the four most obvious things that we can we can play with anything that lessens the stress on the system sweet sweet 
two more directions, two more topics that I, I want to get into. And you could choose which one we start or which one we, we engage with. One that I'm enticed to hear is the one of different ayahuasca or peyote tribes, the differences in, in, in their practices and difference in their, their cultures. And um, I'm going into that, like in the nitty gritty of that. And the other one is just a bunch of questions, you know, the underrated, overrated, just like a random, you know, um, talk about uh, really everything that, that, that crosses our minds. What do you think? And also, how much time you have? Yeah, let's, let's go into the difference between the medicines. I, I, can, I can shorten that. Uh, so in the ayahuasca world, as far as I know, all of the uh, tribes that, use, that have been using it for long enough worth talking about, they have very similar practices. Ayahuasca is a very internalized event. It takes quite a lot of effort to make the medicine and prepare the space. And so they do a few people, not many. I'm not aware of it ever being really big events until the past 50 years. And it would be for a particular purpose. So if someone comes with something, a problem that they're trying to work out, physical, emotional, political, whatever, and them and a couple of others maybe would come and they would have the medicine almost in the dark. Maybe there's a little fire burning. And the person who's leading the ceremony would sing some songs, which are, they talk about them as songs that uh, call the spirits of the medicine and call the spirits of the forces that they want to come and assist. Through my biological window, I would say those songs are very calming and soothing to the person and provoke a particular sense of relaxation that allows that person to drop more fully into the effect of the medicine. So that's the kind of general picture. It's in the dark. There's, there's very few people there. There's one person maybe um, using some additional herbs to generate the atmosphere or the chemistry that they're looking for and singing some songs. And that changed dramatically in the 1920s when the Santa Daimi was formed, when this um, he, uh, a guy called uh, Ireneo Seja, Brazilian guy, was um, sent into the forest to map by the military to map the border between Brazil and Peru, and he was in there for ten years in the deep, you know, deep, deep forest, and he would come across these tribes that uh, use this mysterious brew, and eventually he got involved, and he had a vision that he needed to bring this medicine out into the surrounding areas until then it was a kind of deep dark forest magic no one wanted to know because it's very very poor in that area 100 years ago still is today and deeply deeply christianized and so anything that's not christian is very um stigmatized and so in order to bring the medicine out and make it more acceptable to the people that he felt to bring it to he christianized it so he wove in all of this christian iconography and over the years started to bring in dances and or songs first and then to get everybody moving. And suddenly it was a very different atmosphere. The lights are on, people are up, moving around, everybody singing together. And it, the group grew and grew until now the Santa Daimi is one of the great ambassadors for ayahuasca all over the world. It's legal in all kinds of places. And so that's a very different shift in how ayahuasca was used for many, many, many years. Interestingly, that mimics much more how peyote is used. So in the peyote world, there are two main streams. There's the Weradica people in northern Mexico who, when they saw the devastation that was taking place through 
colonialization, they retreated back up into the high deserts where no one, no white man would ever go. You can't farm there. And so they, they were relatively safe there. And that's where the medicine grows. That's where it's natural homeland. And so they maintained their relationship with the medicine and created a particular culture of how to use it, which is very easy. It's very open. Ceremony is usually done at night, but they have access to the medicine all the time. They, they're eating all the time. And they're very beautiful, simple people. And that's one stream which is still alive today because of about 100 years ago, 200 years ago, maybe they brought it back down when, when things started to settle down in ambient America. They brought it back down from the mountains and started to distribute it to the reservations where the native folk were in a very poor state of health. They're being kept in this low state of health. And so they brought the medicine back in and it started to uh, started to gain a reputation as solving the rampant alcoholism and started to bring those peoples back together. And then they started to trade it amongst themselves. And around 100 years ago, the NAC was born, the Native American Church, which was many, many years of legal battle to give Native peoples the right to use the medicine they always did have. And eventually it was legalized and... And so you've got this Weradika stream, these people that are still, they're still traveling around the planet, still all over the place, leading ceremonies in this very open format. But the Native American church is a combination, using that medicine, a combination of different healing ceremonies from a few different tribes. So you have a very structured, much more specific form of ceremony. And the event is more, is as much about the ceremony as it is about the medicine itself. So they have a very particular structure that celebrates and acknowledges different energies and the different stages of the night. And it's very beautiful and very powerful, but it's very different. It's much more structured. So the, the sitting up, eyes open, lights on, singing songs together, that sounds much more like peyote culture to me. And uh, Ireneo, creating the Santa Daimi, essentially got ayahuasca to do what peyote does naturally. Not to say that you shouldn't, it's a beautiful thing. That's what got me involved in it because it is the flagship use of that medicine. So they're the main sort of dual streams in each of those medicines. And now there's many, many different tribes from the Amazon um, taking their way of doing things. But mostly their way of doing things is, is quite new. The guitars have come in. They've, you know, they've got congas and djembes and it starts off as far as I know, all of them start off with a much more sort of traditional format, just singing the saigdes, the traditional songs, just a cappella, coaxing in particular atmospheres through the songs. And then at some point, they get the drums out and the guitars, and it becomes more like a, a, a more like a peyote meeting, more like a you know up, upstanding, eyes open, everybody singing, joyous event, which is beautiful, fantastic, but it's very different than probably how it looked 100 years ago, 500 years ago. So yeah, that's my summary of those two things you do the same thing for san pedro san pedro i don't know so much about i've all of the san pedro ceremonies that i've seen are very different from that because primarily they take place in the day so my, again my understanding of why ayahuasca and peyote and iboga and the other medicines that i've heard of why they take place at night is because you're, you're taking advantage advantage of the natural biorhythms of the body the mind is most tired if you stay up, and so therefore you have the most access to the subconscious. Easier for the medicine to work there if the mind isn't in the way. So nighttime is where those things are done. Whereas San Pedro's Huachuma is 
it's equally as profound and joyous, but it doesn't have so much of a processy kind of feeling to it. So it's done in the day. It's almost done, often done as an end to a couple of nights of ayahuasca. Because in like Ecuador and some parts of Peru where you've got proximity between the Amazon where the uh, ayahuasca grows and the Andes where San Pedro grows, you've got tribes who have both of those medicines. And so that medicine is used, you, know, you might do two nights of ayahuasca and then in the morning on the second night, they bring the San Pedro out. So it's almost like a celebration, like we did it. It's, it's all going to be okay because it's just got that sunlight kind of feeling to it. So... I'm sure there were many other, and maybe still are many of other ways of using San Pedro, but I haven't come across them. My uh, understanding of it, my experience of it, is that it's much more just a pure celebration. That's why it's called San Pedro. It's St. Peter. He's the one that takes you to the gates of heaven. That's the shortcut. And Wachuma in Quechua, as far as I know, means without the head. You get your head out of the way, and it's all just heart. And so... It's a, it's a different kind of medicine. It's more celebratory rather than processing. And, and celebration is very therapeutic. <laughs> Not knocking it at all. <laughs> you just touch on Iboga, the mm. mystical, uh, the, the one that I think maybe also listeners have the least idea about. Is there traditional use of it? And if, if yes, how was it used? How is it used today? And how, that, how does that contrast? So I haven't personally engaged with Iboga. I, it's been on my path several times and I've said yes to it and then for one reason or another it hasn't happened. Partially because it, it's advised to have a, a big long time before and after it where you're not using any other medicines. And because of the frequency of that work in my life, it's quite difficult to create that space. So so I don't have personal experience of it, but I know many, many people that have lots of my friends have had brief or extended use with it. I know several people that have gone to Gabon to do initiations and it's, it's strong. It's, it's, it's the most mysterious. It's, it's like as mysterious as Africa. It's the mystery, mysteriousness of medicine multiplied by the mysteriousness of Africa. So it's, um, it's quite wild. It's, it works on very different receptors in the brain. It is, uh, it generates dysregulation. So, The normal thinking patterns, the normal patterns that the brain uses to operate the body and consciousness, you could say, are deliberately dysregulated. So they are broken apart. And when the time comes for you to put yourself back together, there are bits that you can leave out. That's the kind of philosophy as I understand it. And like, like it changes you for good. Like you have the access to well you're writing your own. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. And you, you feel it in the music. It, it, uh, spent uh, lots of time around the music and it's all polyrhythmic and polyphonic so it doesn't make sense it's deliberately trying to dysregulate the brain and and it does and a ceremony can be three days long and an initiation is is weeks long and people die you know it's it is the one that will push beyond if it needs to so yeah caution on the other hand ibogaine the chemical that is extracted from iboga is one of the best uh, best cited solutions to all kinds of addictions it's now being used in rehabs all over the place because it has this dysregulation so you can choose whether you want to bring that addiction back in when you reform 
So that's about as much as I mean, I can paint pictures of what I understand the ceremonies look like, and they're wild. But I don't know if that would help. <laughs> it's I'm probably so more scary. Intrigued by that one. Yeah, really. Um, game B. Have you heard of the movement Game B? Uh, there's a bunch of people who um, who wish to like think of a better way of living. Different communities of people mm. uh, who have different like prescriptions to how to live together. Um, and a lot of like intelligent people come up with a lot of very interesting ideas, but um, so far I have not really come across anyone who has included something that gives back to our game a system, to capitalism, that generates tangible financial value. What I mean is there are some communities that, that offer accommodation. That's how they make money. Mm. Others sell their fruits. Mm. What about opening a, a factory, right, where the community has <clears throat> stated, like, like profit motive, and it's kind of interwoven in, in the whole, like, philosophy of the, the community. And it could be a mechanic shop. It could be producing toilet seats, like something that, that, that's like a mundane but mm. useful thing for everyone. And, um, and I think that could be maybe a gateway for people who have, who have dreamt about something more than just uh, making money, but giving back to the system, thereby maybe inviting other people to join this Game B movement, the new system that ultimately wants to get rid of all the evils of, of, of capitalism, but attracting people by by being uh, like attractive to 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 game A people as well. Mm. If, if you know what I mean. Mm. Um, do you think, yeah, approaching a community um, from that perspective, that, that it's okay to make a lot of money, it's maybe even useful at the beginning, that, that, that it could work. As far as I understand what you're saying, that is really well established in history in the little villages or certainly households within the village would contribute by their specialism. Yeah, the blacksmith, that's what he does. That's what his sons are going to do. And he contributes to the village through that. So there's, there's that natural flow of specialization that, that, yeah, I mean, human history is basically built upon that for thousands and thousands of generations so there's no doubt in my mind that it would be a viable model and it, it seems like a something that's got to be worth trying it's not so far from like you say a, an eco community that grows fruit it's 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 feeding back into the system in some way if it was organized around a woodwork shop and it was selling chairs then it would be start to get very similar to what you what you're describing I think so yeah, I don't see why those things can't function. But in fact, I would have thought that the only thing that's against their function is that the, the thing that destroyed that being the norm is that sooner or later, the, the competition, the ability to produce those things cheaper happens at scale. And so industries take over and the, the guy that's been carving chairs for his whole life suddenly can't sell his chairs. That would be the bigger ambient picture that would be problematic for it but as a philosophy yeah absolutely yeah but, but specifically because of the scale stuff that you know cheap stuff is all over the place if, if you're actually specifically gonna produce toilet seats 
it's not going to be worth it because Chinese solid seats are cheaper, but something more technologically uh, sure. advanced, sure. something like, like a robot, something uh, yeah, yeah. that it needs yeah, more technology and like a prototype kind of thing. Um, or just sheer craftsmanship, someone that produces exquisite guitars, you know, something that has quality rather than quantity. You're talking about less of an influence on the capitalist model, of course, because it's a specialist product, but yeah. Anyways, that, that's my big pet peeve now. Should we wrap it up or are you ready for some overrated, underrated? Go for it. Go for it. All right, so I'm going to throw out a concept and you're going to tell me if you think it's overrated or underrated. And um, in a sentence, you could describe why you think that. All right, here we go. Nature. Quite a big word. Uh, by which you mean the kind of natural environment. It's whatever you... <laughs> okay, okay. Uh, yeah, underrated. Uh, it produces everything that we base our economy on, let's say. <laughs> it's pretty big. <laughs> everything that we trade comes from nature, ultimately. That was, that was an easy one. <laughs> Sex. Um... Both. It's underrated in that it is probably the only moment that most people orgasm is the only moment where most people will experience what it's like to have seriously high neurological function going on. But it's so fleeting. Uh, it's the ultimate connector, but also overrated because it's also a major separator between us. It becomes... Um, it, it symbolizes uh, possessiveness. And so it actually stands against connection a lot of the time. All ancient traditions use sex to generate higher brain function. Then we should take, so yeah, I think we really had like four or five points of, of what, you know, like an average guy could do to improve their lives. Maybe sex should be added to the list. Yeah, conscious, conscious sex. sex exactly. Conscious sex, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, intimacy, I guess, in the broader sense. Yeah, vulnerability, yeah, for sure. Is it traveling? Hmm. From the personal standpoint, it's one of the best ways of opening up our sense of how things can be done differently. Beautiful. In terms of what our great-grandchildren are going to inherit from us, it's one of the worst things that we can be doing. <laughs> no easy answer there. Universities and colleges? I like I like Einstein's quote. I, I'm not I haven't chased it down and tracked its validity, but I love it. Whoever said it that the greatest miracle on the planet is that creativity survives education. <laughs> <laughs> Isn't that beautiful? <laughs> on the other hand, it is a place of great accumulation of information, and also a nice place to meet people who are equally as uh, dedicated to, to absolutely to, to yeah to any particular stuff. subject yeah yeah totally speaking foreign languages uh massively underrated it's one of the best things you can do for your brain is another little factoid that when you die and they lay you on a slab in a morgue and they have to take you apart to check you haven't been poisoned or shot or whatever. If they take off your cranium, take off the top of your skull, the one thing they can tell instantly before they get the microscopes and the chemistry sets out, the one thing that they can tell visually 
is whether you played a musical instrument or not. Because when you play a musical instrument, both sides of your brain are communicating with each other, which is the same as when you're driving, because you're using both sides of your body at the same time, but they're, um, they're synchronizing with melody, harmony, rhythm, emotion, and so you build trillions more, billions more axions between the two hemispheres, and you can see it at the visual level. It's a good one. And second is learning new languages. I think languages and music is probably at the same part of my brain. I think. Yeah, there you go. There you go yeah. Artificial intelligence. I think it's underrated. I think it is a terrifying subject that if I look back over history, will be used very badly and probably be the end of civilization. But <laughs> there is a great potential for machines to be doing all of our work. And the question is, what would we then do with all of that time and power? But as an idea, you know, all the inventions that have happened from the Industrial Revolution I don't see people having a much better life than before the Industrial Revolution, so it doesn't look good. But the potential... Spirituality. Yeah, there's a loaded word, huh? Um, if by that we mean attempting to access the parts of ourselves that the mind will not allow, I think it's massively underrated. Santa Maria cannabis. It's another beautiful medicine that has pride of place in particular situations. And there are still whole um, lineages that make use of just that one medicine that for beautiful events. But like most things, when you take a medicine out of its context and you just drench society in it, then for some people it works, some people it don't. Personally, for me, it doesn't. But for many others, they live a much more enriched life because of it. So, yeah, I think it depends on the individual. Podcast. <laughs> I don't think you can really rate podcasts any more than they're already rated. No? They're like one of the most <laughs> popular things going. So, uh, yeah, beautiful way of spreading information and, and making use of moments in your day where you wouldn't be receiving new information. It's, it's the book of this era, isn't it? So, yeah, no doubt, good thing. Democracy. I thought this was going to come up when, when you were talking about community earlier, that I hold... I think it's probably quite a controversial view on all of this in that I see the entire rest of the mammal world working on hierarchy. And democracy is a lovely idea that clearly doesn't work at scale. And so it appears that the problem is not actually democracy or hierarchy. The problem is scale. When you scale anything up, it doesn't work anymore because the people at the top of the pyramid don't know the people at the bottom of the pyramid. So they just become numbers. They're not human beings anymore and lose the connection. But anything at smaller levels, probably democracy might work. Don't know. I've never seen it tried. But we know that benevolent hierarchy works at small scales because we see it all around us all the time. Every flock of birds, every, every herd of sheep, 
every troop of monkeys, every community of human beings that had properly benevolent hierarchies, they work. WhatsApp. Um, another wonderful communication tool. Whether it's worth the inconceivable amounts of energy that are being pumped into it in terms of carbon emissions and the ludicrous conditions of people that are mining the minerals that we make our phones with, depends how big you want the question to be. But as just pure effect, one person to the next, hugely valuable. Books. For me, same as podcasts. It's a, it's a historic version of podcasts. Yeah. I guess you've got to start figuring in tree pulp and <laughs> to make books <laughs> up against lithium mining and the phone. <laughs> There's no right way. <laughs> An interesting factoid on that that I came across recently that um, vegans shouldn't, shouldn't read books because all of the glue that makes up all books is pig-based. <laughs> That's a bitch, isn't it? Go figure. Uh, <laughs> sunshine. Underrated. Underrated. There's been beautiful research on vitamin D recently. We think about it as like stopping the bones from bending and maybe it's a bit good for um, yeah, vitality levels and maybe it bonds calcium. But actually it's the one of the biggest immunology, immune, immune system regulators. It actually suppresses the immune system. So for millions and millions and millions and millions of years, in terms of vitamin D, this is millions and millions and millions and millions of years when us and all of our relatives were wandering around pretty much in sunlight all the time. We've got this constant background suppression of our immune system going on. Suddenly we go indoors, wear clothes, vitamin D disappears. And so our immune system isn't suppressed anymore. It starts raging. And so we have so many autoimmune conditions just through the lack of vitamin D. You can take... It's like a hundred times the RDA of vitamin D before you get to toxic levels. And it takes six months to build up in the system. And once it's there, once you're at good levels, once you're at the kind of blood serum levels that you see in other mammals, then all kinds of conditions just aren't there anymore because it's a massive regulator. It's also a gene modulator. It changes what genes get read in the, in the genome. It's massive, massive. So if that's what you mean by sunshine, I'm all about it. <laughs> hotness, physical hotness. 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 Pretty much, I mean, it's, it's got to be undeniable that for, what, for the course of our evolution, we grew up at this temperature. We grew up at like 25, 30 degrees, pretty consistent temperature. So everything in our environment would be this temperature. Since then, we've moved to all other kinds of the planets and the body has adjusted and adapted I wouldn't say it has changed anything permanent in order to adapt, but it's certainly adaptive. You can get tiny modulations in hormones that, you know, change the color of the eyes and change the color of the skin, and blah, 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 but that's not, that's not genetic change. So we're supposed to regulate at this temperature. We're supposed to function at this temperature. Now, what about hotness, as in hotness of a lady, how hot a lady is, as opposed to how interesting or intelligent or radiating hmm. we have base attractions the first thing that hits us when we meet anyone is how they look which is an expression of health vitality 
childbearing, all of those kind of basal functions. And so that's always going to be the bottom card, the, the kind of foundation. When we start moving up into how they are as a person, how giving they are, whether they're going to make a, whether we think they're going to make a good mother, and we start talking about hearty qualities, and then whether they are aligned with us philosophically, intellectually, that all comes after the very first thing that we are met by is how they look, and so that's top card. That's certainly not the only card, but it's definitely top card. Thereby underrated. It certainly, um, uh, what's the word? Uh, it's not popular to talk about it like that, but as far as I can see, underrated, definitely. Definitely. Intelligence. Thank you. Mm, another word that is meaning many different things to many different people. IQ of itself is not something that I pay that much attention to. For me, intelligence, I guess, would be something more like a how well they can, how well that person can uh, connect with the world around them. How much they appreciate a sunset, for example, that would be that would be a measure of intelligence, a very different kind of intelligence. But also how good they are at problem solving, which is kind of trying to be measured in the IQ test. I get it, and how well they can see the bigger picture in which they sit. So if that's what you mean by intelligence, then underrated, for sure. But IQ itself, overrated. Listening. Massively underrated. Uh, my experience has led me to understand that as a nutritionist and a <clears throat> facilitator and all the rest of it, the nutrient we are most deficient in is attention. And so... The only solution to that is to get out of the way and listen. But we can't really listen until we've been listened to. So there's this whole kind of empathic journey that we need to go on with ourselves first and then and then it grows. Big believer that you gotta be alone a long time and get comfortable with yourself yeah. to be able to become listening. Science and technology. Mm, extension of artificial intelligence, I guess, in I already answered it that massively beautiful, entertaining, life easing at one level. On the other hand, we are we find ourselves in a nine to five working pattern in order to afford the technology that's supposed to make our lives easier. So I'm a firm believer in pre-technology, we had a much better life. Two to three hours a day tilling fields or collecting what we need fixing up the house, the rest of the time playing with the kids and laughing with each other. Who wouldn't want that? That's, that's, that's what you can buy yourself when you become a millionaire, no? <laughs> We already did that. <laughs> so a lovely idea in the hands of idiots. <laughs> Veganism. Like most people that have been on a dietary or a spiritual, for want of a better word, journey i've explored it and then i came to understand much more about biology and gut function and we don't see any of our closest relatives that are vegans vegan is similar to democracy it's a lovely idea but we don't actually see it in in our line of creatures 
And we also know, we've confirmed this ourselves, that if you attempt to become vegan sooner or later, you've got to start supplementing with things because there's just we don't have a gut long enough to process pure vegetable matter. doesn't mean we have to eat meat all the time. It means we have to eat meat very sparingly, but sometimes. So, yeah, lovely idea, and I totally get it ethically. Who I don't know anybody that agrees with the meat industry, but, you know, have your own chickens, eat roadkill, go hunting, go fishing, and you avoid the meat industry. Probably not a popular idea to the average city-dwelling listener, but <laughs> first thing would be get out of the city. Here's the last one. Money. Hmm. It's so imbued within us and within our culture, I find it difficult to talk about it one way or the other. Personally, my relationship with money is very easy, not because I was born with any, but because it's, it's always just come and gone really easily for me. I've always had enough. I've worked hard. I've you know been creative in the business that I've created, and so there's enough flowing in, and, I, and the, the main bitch around it is that if you don't have enough, it's always the top card, and that's a horrible place to be. It's like if you don't have your health, it's always going to be the top card. But if you can get on top of it, then it shouldn't be the top card anymore. And then easiness comes. It's another, it falls into the same thing as technology for me, that pre-industrialization or pre-monetization, we had a much better life. So you couldn't buy things from the other side of the planet, but you didn't know they were there. You didn't, you know, yeah, it had limitations, but they were just the limitations of the world. We've still got our limitations. So... It does enable us to do beautiful things if that's what we choose to do. But the main thing for me is that we need to be really conscious about where we get our money. What are we working about? What are we perpetuating in the world through the work that we do in order to get money? And then how do we spend our money? What are we perpetuating in the world through what we buy? What are we voting for with the money that we spend? So in the meantime, until we go back and live in some hobbit village that doesn't have money, in the meantime, just much more consciousness around it. And whenever we talk about the word money, we have to include in there the word enough. So, you know, the, the main problem is that people don't ever seem to have enough money. There's always this search for more. They've got a nice big house, three-bedroom house that they only use two bedrooms of. Why? It's, it's a bank account. It's not, it's not something that you need to have. It's a place to store money. When you don't need it, sell it on, free up the money. But we get attached to our, and identified with our uh, belongings, and then it starts to work against us. I would say that it's, it's not us, it's, it's somehow like the power of money itself that, that controls people, right? Like it's, people don't want to get rich. I think it's money that wants people to have more of it, more of it, and it perpetuates this, this entire capitalistic system that... Uh, on its own, it's, it's a very complex topic. It is a very curious one, but there is that, that idea that if I had more, I would feel better. And that, that equation really needs to be checked in with. Like, is that actually the case? Uh, we, we do know that um, up until a certain level, like the level of having enough of it. Absolutely. It, it, there's a correlation. You need, you need to have enough. Certainly. You don't need more. Yeah. yeah. Enough is the, that's the critical word. Yeah. Well, I wish everyone enough money um, <laughs> and the nice Likewise. way to spend it. Yeah. <laughs> um, all right. Well, 
thank you for this. Um, Pleasure. I learned so much and Great. I had so much fun. Great. It was a really beautiful thing to do. I've done a few now and, and I always enjoy it. So, yeah, thanks for listening. Nice one. <laughs>